When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken for our fifth and final week in Isaiah. I don't know about you, but I have mixed feelings about being here at the end of this incredible book of Scripture. On the one hand, I'm looking forward to the rest of our year. Uh, starting next week, we'll get two weeks on Jeremiah. Uh, he's amazing. We'll get only one week on Ezekiel, which is a travesty because he deserves more than one. Uh, we'll have a week on Daniel, and then we'll fly our way through the minor prophets, so averaging uh, two prophets a week until we get to the end of this year of Old Testament scripture study. Yeah, so I am looking forward to the rest uh, of, of our year, but I am sad to see Isaiah go. Yeah, I imagine many of you were sad to see him come, uh, or at least were a little nervous about it. And I, I get that, I totally understand, but I really do hope that you're feeling a bit of that sorrow as well, knowing that his time with us is coming to its close. I hope after a month worth of immersing yourself in Isaiah, You've begun to understand his approach, that you're, you're reading these things with a bit of a Hebrew accent in the back of your head, uh, kind of like reading Shakespeare enough, you start to think in British. Uh, there's, there's power here, and his eloquence and his imagery are such gifts. I, I love what Moroni does in Ether 12, where he basically says, I can't do justice to the things that I'm trying to write about. And I get that as a teacher. I can't do justice to the subject matter when you're teaching about Almighty God. When you're teaching about a perfect gospel, our words just fall short. That's the way it is. And as Moroni said, you can behold the awkwardness of your hands, or in my case, my, my stammering lips. But then when Moroni talks about the brother of Jared, and he says, yeah, when he wrote, <laughs> you, give, you gave him the gift of, of writing. And he could write things as mighty as thou art. He says to God. Uh, nothing's lost in translation there. And that to me is one of the gifts that Isaiah has. That so little is lost in translation that as he says himself and as the Lord asks him a time or two, what could you possibly use to describe me? What would you compare me to? And Isaiah probably smiles and thinks, well, I know nothing will come qu quite close enough, but I've got a few thoughts. Uh, and there are a few things that I'd love to teach in hopes that people will be able to tap into their poetic side, the, 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 the right brain side of emotion and, and symbolism and, and feeling so that they can come in some small way to know this, their Savior. The messianic messages of this incredible prophet, I hope we've come to know not just Isaiah, because that's not his point. I hope we've come to know the Savior a little bit better with Isaiah's help. That's, that's what he's here for, that he might more fully persuade us to believe in the Lord, our Redeemer. And he's been having that effect on me, which I'm grateful for. So we're going to start today in Isaiah 58 and go through the end of the book, chapter 66. Uh, these are some amazing messages. And the first chapter, chapter 58 today, uh, is one that's fairly famous because its focus is on the fast. 
And if you ever wonder if your fasting is up to specs, then compare it, uh, measure it against Isaiah 58, and that will give you a sense. The way he begins in verse 1 and 2, he says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. So, yes, welcome to this week's material. Uh, Show them what they're doing wrong. And the hardest part for you, Isaiah, will be to do it in a way that they will actually recognize that what they're doing is wrong. To convince them of all their ungodly deeds is how it's said elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, So how's Isaiah going to do it here? Well, he'll try it sarcastically. Well, let's give that a shot. So he says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. I mean, what's not to love about Israel, right? Well, if they actually did those things, that is. (laughs) But that is not what ancient Israel is doing. They're falling short in all of those things. Seeking God daily? No. Delighting to know his ways? How many times has Isaiah had to to call them out for their idolatry? For their their topsy-turvy sense of morality where they've shifted the poles between good and evil? And now good is evil and evil is good. Now, there's all kinds of things that they're not doing right. Not asking of God the ordinances. No, they're changing the ordinances instead. And not delighting in approaching God. Delighting in abandoning Him. So, what, what's, the, what's the solution here? Well, he's not to the solution yet, but here's one more problem. Because maybe it, maybe it was problem and solution. Fasting is what he's going to get, start talking about, and fasting could be part of the solution if they did it right. Unfortunately, they're not doing it right, and that's part of the problem. So he says in verse 3 and 4, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Now, did you catch the rhyme? How do they view fasting? Th- those are Israel's words, okay? They say, wherefore, that means why, Why have we fasted when you don't even notice, God? Why are we afflicting our soul if you don't seem to acknowledge all of this incredible self-sacrifice that I didn't eat anything today? Now, remember rhymes. The great thing about Isaiah is if you don't understand one half, look at at its its rhyme and see if it sheds some light on the subject. Well, in this one, when he talks about you fasted and God isn't seen, you afflicted your soul, and God doesn't take knowledge. So in their mind, just little, this subtle dig. Is that how you describe fasting? Afflicting your soul? Is that all it is to you? Uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a verse about fasting, and there's a rhyme there too. But it talks about fasting and prayer, or in other words, rejoicing and prayer. It's like, oh, in God's mind, that's the rhyme? Yay, it's Fast Sunday. I don't think I felt that way when I was young. I do now. Because I'm understanding better now than I did then what a true fast is. And I have Isaiah largely to thank for it. So notice what he says next. Behold, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure. And fasting, especially in the Old Testament, is meant to be a day of mourning of godly sorrow, of broken hearts and contrite spirits, of sackcloth and ashes, of repentance from sin, okay? But no, you're finding pleasure that day. Not exactly as much of an affliction as you want it to seem. 
keep going, you exact all your labors. And that's not right because this is supposed to be a day of rest, like Sabbaths are. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. And none of those things are what is intended by a day of fasting and prayer. No, to fast for strife and debate? It sounds like these people are getting hangry, okay? And, and it's giving in to their, their baser selves, their natural man or woman. And now I'm, I'm just kind of snapping at people. That, that's not a good fast. Fasting is supposed to humble you, to real, help you realize just how dependent you are on the blessings of God, on His providence, that you actually can eat most of the time because of what He offers you. But to, to smite with a fist of wickedness instead of offering to one another a broken heart and a contrite spirit, uh, a shared sense of reliance upon the Lord. No, they're doing all of this all wrong. And so that's why he says at the end of this verse, ye shall not fast as ye do this day. And then one last example of how they're doing it wrong, to make your voice to be heard on high. Now that last line is an interesting one, because isn't that correct in a way? Don't we fast to show God how desperately we need the blessing that we're fasting for. It doesn't, it, doesn't it intensify our, our sense of, of feeling and, our, and the depth of our desire? Doesn't it show God how serious we are about what we're pleading for? I, I care about the blessing that I'm seeking more than the food that I'm missing. And so doesn't it increase the volume of our prayers, if I can put it that way, to make our voice to be heard on high? Now, to a degree, I believe that does do that, and that that's one of the purposes behind fasting. But if that's, I guess it all boils down to attitude, right? Uh, and not just outward action, and the attitude of Israel, as Isaiah is describing it, oh, it's negative all the way through. And so, to make their voice to be heard on high through their fasting, to me, suggests a certain attempt to twist the divine arm. Is this blackmail, so to speak? And if you don't give me what I want, then I'll, I'll starve myself. I mean, if you actually think about it, that's one of the attempts uh, on Gandhi's part, to try to convince the British government to be kinder to the citizens of India. And, and what a noble approach to, be, to uh, try to work on human emotion through a degree of self-sacrifice. Again, the genius of nonviolent demonstration. But to go on these forced fasts himself, so that he could try to appeal to public opinion, which would then look upon his suffering, and then leverage that into oh, feelings against the British crown. And look what you're doing to him. Well, we're not doing anything. He can eat. Well, no, he's refusing to. And boy, did it make his voice to be heard oh, at, at a far, far higher pitch and a far broader scope. But that's not what we're doing with God. We are not blackmailing him. And I hope I didn't say, I'm not trying to say anything negative about Gandhi here, okay? What he did was, was genius. But it's different when we're, when we're fasting to God. We're not twisting his arm. We approach him with greater desire, with deeper humility, not with a greater sense of pride or entitlement. That you owe me this now because I didn't eat. Well, where were you going to get the food to begin with? From God. We owe it all to Him. So what does He say? Verse 5. 
Is it, what I just described, such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? That was your rhyme, after all. Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Yes, I mean, that's part of what you do in this tradition, but is that, is that the purpose? Or is this just a means to a greater end? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Oh, this isn't the ends. This is just the means. And so if you're just focusing and fixating on an empty stomach, then yes, I guess some affliction, some sackcloth and ashes is a natural consequence. But even that is for a far greater end. And again, that is to to humble ourselves, to give God a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It's meant to prepare and soften us. And then he goes on to describe what a, what a real fast looks like. I gave you the negative by way of comparison, contrast. Now let me give you the positive. Verse 6, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? It is amazing what fasting can do to break the bands of the flesh, to strengthen the spirit as it weakens the body and helps both parties know who's in charge. It's amazing. I often say this to my students that uh, fasting is a, in some ways, a no-risk chance to practice self-discipline, self-restraint, self-control. It's a a no-danger, no-risk way to convince the body that it, it doesn't get its way all the time. I would far rather fall during a fast and, and slip up and, and run to the pantry when no one's watching and sneak a Snickers to make it through the day uh, and then realize, oh, I can do better than that. And yes, the, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And wow, it really was weak. I couldn't even make it through the day. It looks like I need to do some more practicing. And then next Fast Sunday, I will try a little harder and, and keep on practicing until my spirit really has learned to master the flesh. I call it a no-risk way of doing it because are there eternal ramifications for sneaking a Snickers? I hope not. But what if it's a different situation? And this time, the physical appetite is not just for food? What if the physical appetite is for things that the word of wisdom would warn you against? What if the physical appetite is for things that the law of chastity would warn you against? What if the lusts of the flesh really are lustful and not simply driven by your caloric needs? No, in those kinds of situations, I hope I have paid the price through a lifetime of fast Sundays and maybe a few fast days in between them to convince my body who really is in charge. If I can do that, then what will my fasting do for me? It will loose the bands of wickedness. It will undo heavy burdens. It will let me go free if I'm the one who's oppressed. It will break those yokes. It's amazing how often we just think that we can't say no to the body. 
and we can't say no when we're hungry, and we can't say no when we're thirsty, and we can't say no when we're tired, and we just, it's in charge. And that is a reversal of responsibility. And what a gift our bodies are, but it's a gift that we need to learn to control. And the Spirit will do that controlling. Now that's what fast, among other things, what the fast can do for us. I had a bishop years ago that I served with that just always would say that fasting is the best kept secret in the church. And it's not meant to be a secret. Uh, just its power. Uh, we'll see that in the New Testament next year. When the apostles were unable to cast out this evil spirit to heal this, this man's son. And when Jesus heals him, what does he say? Well, part of it was a little lack of faith on your part. Uh, but also this kind does not come out but by prayer and fasting. You were doing the praying, but you weren't fasting. And I, by the way, that suggests the fact that Jesus was successful in healing this boy. And he said, this one only works through prayer and fasting. What does that let you know Jesus was doing? Fasting. What had he been doing, by the way, right before he came down and saw the apostles and this father and son? That was the day he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. To me, there's something powerful about the fact Jesus fasted that day to prepare to spend some time with God on that mountaintop. That, that to me is beautiful. We often don't think of Jesus fasting, but he was fasting then. Well, that's for us. What about what it does for others? Look at verse 7. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Now, I love the way Isaiah puts that. Your fasting is a chance to deal thy bread to the hungry. And with that, we think, oh yeah, fast offerings. It's a genius. And honestly, as a kid, I remember when I did the math and I realized, wait, fast, fast offerings don't cost us anything. That's incredible. Uh, because the money I was going to spend on food, I don't eat the food, which means I didn't spend the money on it. Uh, and, but the f money I would have spent, I can now donate that so someone else can get food with it. That's genius. Who thought of this? Oh, God. Uh, well, to understand then that that first part happens every time we give our fast offerings. I have dealt my bread to the hungry. I just converted it into monetary form because it, it doesn't have such a quick expiration date. Okay, And then they can use that money to get food for themselves. But I do remember once, oh, I guess as an enterprising uh, maybe an overly hungry teenager, thinking, wouldn't it be amazing to have enough money that you can give a generous fast offering, but you didn't have to fast to be able to make sure it didn't cost you anything? Man, maybe that's when, that's when you've really arrived economically. When you don't have to fast, and you still can give a fast offering. Uh, because, again, if it's only to, to save us the money, then I don't need to, I'm not worried about saving the money. So let's just give it to the poor. Now that defeats the purpose of fasting too, as Isaiah points out. Because it's not merely to deal thy bread to the hungry in monetary form. Notice how empathetic you're supposed to feel toward the poor. There's a sense here of inviting them into your own house. Wow, you'd, you'd have to feel a lot of sympathy and concern and compassion to do that, wouldn't you? When it speaks of hiding themselves from their own flesh, what the, I'm, I'm supposed to feel 
They're bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, to borrow that kind of intimate language. There's a oneness here. There is a true calm passion, calm with passion, suffer. I'm suffering with them. I'm feeling true empathy with them. And empathy usually comes at a cost. It comes at joining what Paul called the fellowship of suffering. Hear what I mean by this. When I fast, truly, I get to feel for that one day what the poor feel like most days. And not only then am I put in a better position financially to help support them, I'm... I'm, I forced myself into a better position emotionally to want to. If this is what they feel all the time, and they can't go sneak a, sneak a, sneak a Snickers, they don't have a full pantry and, and a refrigerator that's bursting at the seams. And for me, it's just a matter of time as I'm ticking down the seconds and waiting for the dinner bell to ring. No, there are those who go to bed hungry every night. There are those for whom fasting isn't a choice that they make on the first Sunday of the month. It's something you do until the next meal somehow comes. And when and where and how will it come? Perhaps by someone who has a heart in the right place, who for an instant, for a time, knows what this feels like and is moved to make a difference. Fast offerings without the fasting behind it in so many ways defeats the purpose. I'm glad I've grown up a bit and realized this wasn't a money-saving venture on the Lord's part. It was a heart-changing attempt. Let your stomach feel like theirs, and maybe your heart will start to feel like theirs too. In fact, maybe your heart will start to feel like mine, God would say. Since I'm trying to provide for them through you, I love them as much as I do you. I gave you more, and they have less, in hopes that you would lean into the better angels of your nature, that you would want to be as just as I am, and that you would share. I I love this part of fasting, And, and fast offerings are such a beautiful... I remember when I was, what, 10 years old? It was 1985. And the famine in Ethiopia prompted President Benson to proclaim a worldwide fast among members of the church in the middle of the week and said, whatever fast offerings the church receives on that Wednesday or whatever day of the week it was, I will send a young apostle, uh, M. Russell Ballard, to Ethiopia to figure out how to best distribute it and make make it go as far as we can for the people there. And I remember as a little 10-year-old, sitting at lunch uh, at Wiley Canyon Elementary School uh, with, no, with no food. And my non-member friends looking at me going, Jared, what, you forgot your lunch today? Here, you can have my fruit snacks. And I'm all, no, I'm good. They're like, oh, here, here take my applesauce. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm fine. And they're like, what? No, you're not. You didn't bring any food. Here, eat. They understood what it was like to care for your own flesh, right, and to deal your bread to the hungry. It comes naturally once you see it, once it's someone that you know, once you can personalize want and poverty, they, they were demonstrating that. And then little old me, 10-year-olds, I didn't know how to explain it. I'm like, oh, the, the Ethiopians. And they're like, what? But if I remember correctly, in that one day, a bunch of little kids around the world foregoing their fruit snacks, but more importantly, their parents 
giving a generous fast offering. I think it was $6 million raised in one day, which may not sound like much, but in some ways, in my opinion, that might mark one of the, one of the real turning points in the history of humanitarian aid in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We've given billions since then, but it all begins with a fast and a generous fast offering. Well, that's what it does for others. We've already seen what it does for ourselves, but perhaps for an overly selfish Israel, Isaiah goes back to themselves, and here's a few more blessings that could come your way. Verse 8 and 9, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily. There seems to be a spiritual strength and mental clarity suggested in the first half, and then physical health and healing suggested in the second Science would back both of those up, by the way, that fasting does clear the mind. It does allow the body to do some of its own healing. It's not spending all of its energy on digestion. It can convert that to, to other things. Thy righteousness shall go before thee, Isaiah continues. The glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. That's all the Lord is asking for. I do love the thought. Again, it's not twisting the divine arm. It's not blackmailing heaven. It's not trying to oh, force his hand to feed us, to bless us. Don't you see what I'm putting myself through? No, but there is a sense that when you call, I'll answer. Actually, it makes me wonder, since he <laughs> does that anyway, maybe it's finally we can recognize the answer that's always been there. We are a little more oh, tied in and tapped in that we can hear his voice a little more clearly uh, if we can get past the, the growling of the stomach. Okay? I also do like the way he puts it at the end there. Uh, what I'm asking for, take away the yoke. Get rid of this vain speaking, thinking so much about yourself. It, it, it's what ends up happening when you can always provide for yourself. And, and there's this sense, this, this lack of reliance upon heaven. Because I've got, I've got everything I need to meet my needs. And this putting forth of the finger is an interesting one too. Uh, other translations simply say pointing. That, that so much of this is pointing the finger, and, and it gives a sense of mockery and, and ridicule and shaming of other people. What does this have to do with fasting? I do wonder sometimes about people who have more than enough and how they feel about those who don't. And is there a certain level of pointing the finger and looking down upon them out of their own sense of vanity and thinking, I have what I deserve, I'm a hard worker, and you have what you deserve, because you must not be you must not be providing for yourself. Again, if fasting introduces us to our own flesh and our reliance upon the Lord, and but by the grace of God go I in that same circumstance, then I don't think we'll be putting forth the finger at other people. By the way, I do have to chuckle at the way the King James translators rendered that. Put forth the finger. And others, it's just pointing. When I was first starting to read the Book of Mormon in Spanish, uh, I didn't know Spanish 
really well, but I wanted to give myself a head start before I got to Puerto Rico. So I bought El Libro de Mormón, and I began, yo nefi, habiendo sido nacido de buenos padres. Uh, and I got to First Nephi 8, and it was talking about the Great and Spacious Building. Uh, I knew enough Spanish, I could kind of work my way through it. But it talked about these people in the Great and Spacious Building, señalando con el dedo. I'm like, what does that mean? I know dedo was finger. Señalar means to signal. So they were signaling with the finger. Hmm. I didn't realize that just is the way to say point in Spanish. In English, there's a word, you point. But that it's, well, you point with the finger. Or here, it's you put forth the finger. You señalar con el dedo. But in my mind, you'll have to forgive me, but where do you think my teenage mind went when someone is signaling with the finger? And I was like, yikes. That's exactly what they do in the Great and Spacious Building. <laughs> As they try to shame and mock those that are partaking of the fruit of the Tree of Life. I wonder if a similar thing is being, <laughs> could, could be suggested here. That people are more than just mocking and pointing. They are really putting it to the poor. And saying, you, you get what you deserve. No, that's... that's it, it's, that's just not right. It's not even accurate. They deserve better than that. And we can help give it to them. Isaiah then says in 10 and 11, And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, there's the attitude behind it all, and satisfy the afflicted soul, there's the action that that attitude will give rise to, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noon day. Can you imagine even your darkest moments being full of light? The Lord shall guide thee continually. There's that spiritual closeness, a clear signal with no static getting in the way. Thou shalt satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. You've been provided for when it's your turn to receive instead of your turn to give. And thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Think about how many times Isaiah has pointed to water imagery and this in a very arid land in Israel. And so to be a watered garden, to have a springs of, of living water springing up within you unto everlasting life, fasting really is one of the best kept secrets in the church. And it's not meant to be a secret. He then says this in verse 12, And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places, Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. What great titles to gain. The repairer of the breach. Just certain places, weak spots that the enemy can break through. And that's where I was assigned. Sounds like Nehemiah on the wall. And where are you? Well, I'm the one that was at this breach, but it's repaired now. There were paths that were... Hard to follow, but now those paths have been restored. And people can make it home. All that from fasting? Yes. It, especially when fasting and prayer and self-sacrifice and generosity and giving to others, all of that, all surrounding the principle of the fast, when that becomes part of your family culture, oh, that's when hearts of fathers and children are turning to one another and turning outside themselves. I think too often, even for children, they know fasting and its affliction. <laughs> They're experiencing it. 
Do they sense the joy of fast offering? Too often they're doing the, the work and not seeing the reward go to other people. Maybe parents, this is something we can do a better job of, of involving our children with and helping them see and be a part of that. To Spend some time with them this week in Isaiah 58 and perhaps our children will be able to recognize what an untapped resource fasting really is. To bless them, to soften their hearts, to strengthen their spirits, to bless those outside them. Oh, it's, it's a powerful, powerful thing. And I'm grateful Isaiah described it so powerfully himself. He then shifts gears, and in the last two verses of this chapter, he goes from fasting to the Sabbath. And maybe in his mind it was because, speaking of afflictions, speaking of things that you tend to focus on what you can't do, fast, it's fast Sunday, I can't eat Sabbath, I can't do anything. Really? Is that <sighs> afflicting your soul? It's so much better than that once you allow it to be. And so he says in verse 13, if, and it, this could be a big if, if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, now, he's going to get to the then part of this if-then statement in the next verse, but let's focus on this if-half. What's he asking us to do? How? It's ironic. He says, you know, you need to start calling the Sabbath a delight. And you can picture Israel going, but it isn't. Well, that's the problem. If you'll allow it to be, if you'll do it right, then it will be a delight. And maybe the first thing to change is your attitude about it. So let's start considering it and calling it a delight. And let that be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Realize, well, I'll put it this way. The pronouns, to me, do most of the heavy lifting in verse 13. Uh, thy foot and thy pleasure as opposed to my holy day. It's of the Lord. It's mine. That's another possessive phrase. But the phrase that keeps being repeated at the end, not thine own ways, not thine own pleasure, not thine own words, the Sabbath day really is a tug of war over possessive pronouns. It's mine. No, no, it's mine. And I think what makes it so, such an affliction to people is when we, when we don't surrender that possessive pronoun. When we really do think it's our day. And God just won't let me use it for what I want. But once you hand the reins over, and say, you know, God, it was incredibly generous of you to give me six out of seven days in the week. That's amazing. You only wanted one. And if I can fully surrender this time to you, I think C.S. Lewis taught something similar, that our problem is we think that time belongs to us. And so anyone who's impinging upon it or asking too much of it, whereas if we see time as a stewardship rather than a sense of ownership, and that the time actually belongs to God, and he's loaning it to us. But we become stewards of that time, and say, okay, Heavenly Father, what do you want me to do with it? How would you like me to spend these hours? And once that happens, I've seen that in terms of raising children. The only time, well, probably not only, the main times I lose patience with my children is when I don't feel like I have time to give them. And there's too many other things going on, and you're taxing my time, and... 
as opposed to, what do you want to do? I got all the time in the world for you today. And to give them that gift of time with no pressure about, this is what, how I want to be spending it. Oh no, my time is no longer mine, it's now yours. And so do with it as you choose. And those are the best times with my children, the best times with family, and the best times with God. Lord, you've given me Sunday. And on this beautiful Sabbath, what would you like me to do? This isn't about my pleasure. It isn't about my words. It isn't about my ways. It's holiness to thee. And those kinds of days are delightful. If we can do that, make that shift, then notice the promise in verse 14. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. It really will be delightful, just like you said it was even before it started feeling that way. And I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So bank on it. He's given you his word. And what is that word, this beautiful if-then conditional promise? If you'll do your part, if you'll relinquish the possessiveness on this day and just give in to what I'm asking you to do, it'll be for your sake, believe me, then you will end up delighting yourself in the Lord. Riding upon the high places, what is that all about? The high places. To rise above the cares of the world, that's the freedom the Sabbath gives to me. Oh, it really started to hit me in college when I was so busy with things. And finally, uh, midnight on Saturday night would come and I was so sick of the paper I was writing or the homework I was trying to get finished that stopping it was a reprieve. I felt like I was on home base. And it wasn't a matter of, oh, I can't work on you for the next 24 hours. It was, you can't touch me for the next 24 hours. <laughs> I'm safe. And yes, I might have to wake up really early on Monday morning to get you done before it's due, but... What a relief that you can't keep chasing me. And to feel that, to rise above, there's a high place. And actually, when you think about high places, think about temple. Because the Sabbath is meant to be our sanctuary in time, just like the temple is meant to be our sanctuary in space. Here we are, mortal beings, stuck in space-time, right? And to think about times and places of holiness, of sacredness. The, the Sabbath is our temple time. And it's the time where our home can be most like the temple. In fact, if you go back to verse 13 and where he talks about it will be, the, call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord. Think about that in, term, in temple terms. Because in the temple of Solomon or the tabernacle of Moses, there is a holy place. Call it the holy of the Lord. That's this anteroom in the temple before you get to the holiest place, the holy of holies. So as we are riding upon high places, as we are entering the holy of the Lord, think about what's there and picture that as your Sabbath. Because in the holy place, on the left side, there is the candle stand, the menorah. On the right side is the, the table of showbread, uh, dead center in front, in front of you before you get to the altar excuse me, before you get to the veil, is the altar, the altar of incense, that is, with its incredible aroma 
the sweet savor ascending to heaven, like the prayers of the saints, that's its symbolism. If the holy place is my Sabbath, holy to the Lord, think about what that day can offer me and what on that day can I offer God. It is a day meant to bring me light. Glorious, brilliant, clear vision of what I'm supposed to be doing with my life and what really matters and what really doesn't. There's the candle stand. The table of showbread, remember it was also called the bread of the presence. And if I can recognize the sacrament that day, the, the sanctity of what God has done for me, that it's a day where I can feel his presence in my life in, in clearer and more personal ways. And then approaching the veil, it's amazing how thin it, it can become on the Sabbath. As I come to God in prayer and raise my voice, raise my heart to him, it's what happens in the holy place that is meant to prepare you to cross the veil and enter the holy of holies. And if you can picture the Sabbath doing that, this is my holy place on earth, and it is preparing me for an eternity in the holiest place in heaven. Oh, my friends, I pray that we can take better, take advantage of it, almost makes it sound too crass. I hope that we can allow the Sabbath to fill the measure of its creation, that it can do what it was designed to do for us. We always talk about keeping the Sabbath day holy. Flip it around. Allow the, the Sabbath to keep you holy. That's, that's its divine design. In fact, in Tennessee, a new convert to the church, it was, we were on a road trip to Nauvoo uh, with all the young singles. And on the drive back, she asked the most wonderful question, just this new convert so full of faith and just wondering about certain things and if they broke the Sabbath or not. And I don't know if it was just the way she said it. It's like, does this break the Sabbath? And does that break the Sabbath? All this talk of breaking and the fact that I was driving a van that I wasn't familiar with and hoped that it was going to make it back home to Tennessee. Maybe that's what struck a chord for me. And I thought, you know, think about the word you just used. If it's broken. If something's broken, it means it's not working the way it was designed. So I'm not going to tell you whether you can or can't do that on the Sabbath. That's going to be personal, and that's going to be a chance for you to grow up in God. But maybe that's a good way to, to decide on a few things. If I do that, or if I don't do this, is the Sabbath still working the way it's supposed to? Is it becoming delightful for me? Is it introducing me to the high and holy place of God? Is it a spiritual delight? And then it's not so much a day of don'ts and all these strict laws and commandments. I mean, next year, New Testament, it's amazing how Jesus treats the Sabbath. Much to the consternation of the Pharisees that are so busy counting their steps that day. Oh no, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It was designed to bring you closer to God. And if by the end of a Sabbath you haven't felt that, then something was a little off. And whether because of something you did or something you didn't do. Yeah, the Sabbath felt a little broken. And next Sunday, I want to do a little bit better job of fixing it. To make sure it does what God intends.
I, I do love Isaiah 58 for what it teaches us about things that we do so frequently. Uh, as Elder Irene has said, if we can make small improvements in things that happen very, very often, then cumulatively that will make a profound difference in our lives. So small tweaks in your fasting, small improvements in your Sabbath day worship over a lifetime, it's amazing how close to God we can end up. Isaiah 59 then follows, and we're back to a, a call out against iniquity, but also a promise of intercession on the Lord's part. He says in verse 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. These are not minion hugs like my daughter gives me. Okay? No, no, no T-Rex arms here. He can reach all the way down to you. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So that's not the problem. What is then? Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. If there is some sense of separation, don't blame God for it. Look, Lord, is it I? And chances are it will be. Now, I'll actually pause for a second and to say that's not always the case. You remember that verse we saw at the end of 2 Chronicles with King Hezekiah, that God left him to try him to see all that was in his heart. There may be times where God wants to see if we'll keep pedaling the bike without him running right alongside it. But he's still closer than we think. Elder Richard G. Scott, amazing apostle that had such a closeness to spiritual things, pointed this out in a conference talk years ago. He said, no one wants adversity. Trials, disappointments, sadness, heartache, they come to us from two basically different sources. Those who transgress the laws of God will always have those challenges. The other reason for adversity is to accomplish the Lord's purposes in our life, that we may receive the refinement that comes from testing. And then notice this, it is vitally important for each of us to identify from which of these two sources come our trials and challenges. For the corrective action is very different. I appreciated the wisdom of that statement from Elder Scott. If I'm feeling far from God through no fault of my own, and this is tricky because we all have faults. None of us are perfect. But if there are not things that I know have alienated the Holy Ghost, but I'm not feeling as close to God as I want, then perhaps this is one of those Hezekiah-type moments where God wants to see if I'll keep pedaling my bike. Maybe this is a time when God wants us to do a little more growth and develop a little more independence. The, the center of gravity shifts from inspiration more toward agency, and I have to make some decisions. On the other hand, in those cases, there's nothing to repent of. It's just, okay, here we go. I'm, I'm going to keep pressing forward. But in those instances where you can think, Lord, is it I, and something comes rushing to mind. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, this one I brought upon myself. This is self-inflicted. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here. God's not testing you here. You're testing God and his divine patience. You have separated yourselves between him and you, and it's your iniquity that's standing in the way. Get over it. Get it out of the way, and you'll be able to progress. It actually is interesting to think about which of all of your sins is keeping you from God? And in a way, the simplest answer is the biggest one. 
uh, if you were to, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Years ago when I was teaching seminary for the first time Book of Mormon year, I had spent much of the summer trying to decorate my classroom so that students would walk in and just feel like, oh, okay, but we're ready to, we're ready to rock in the Book of Mormon. One whole wall was Lehi's dream. But I didn't make it only with the symbols. I wanted them to see what the symbol represented. So for the Tree of Life, it was like a life-size picture of Jesus. And for the iron rod, it was like a 20-foot scripture <laughs> that I printed out and then laminated. And it was you could read the Word of God that brought you to the Savior. Uh, the Mists of Darkness was everybody's favorite because I brainstormed like hundreds of sins. Nothing was too graphic or suggestive, but I just listed. On, I printed them out on little dark-colored cards and laminated them and put Velcro on the back and then stuck them all over that wall so that you had to navigate through those mists of darkness by following the, the Word of God to be able to come to Christ. But the students had a, so much fun rearranging the sins because there was this sense of the, the bigger the sin, the further away from Jesus. And so murder would be way at the back of the room. And I don't know, what did I put on there? Eating strawberries out of season? Is that even sinful? I don't know. But things like that were as close to Jesus as you can get. It's just one last thing to overcome, okay? Uh, and I snuck in a bunch of sins that weren't really sinful uh, just to see if they were paying attention. Country, listening to country music was on there because I knew the, the country music fans were the ones that felt most justified. That this, this is like the only good kind of music left to listen to. That's not exactly true. Uh, but I would, would always make fun of it. I think the Lord knew I was going to go to Nashville for eight years and... Uh, <laughs> he gave me my due. Uh, but, but I would always see catch students like, what? No, that's, that's worse than this. And they'd rearrange things. What I'm trying to say here based on Isaiah 59, it's your iniquities that have separated you from him. And what's my biggest sin? And that, that's the furthest away from Christ. But that's what's keeping me from coming closer. If I can repent of that and it disappears... My, the way ahead of me is clear. Well, at least for a step or two. Until I bump up against my next biggest sin. Oh, I guess that's the one I need to work, start working on now. And it's interesting. This is, Isaiah, this is uh, Ether 12, 27. That as men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Do you catch it? The closer we get, the more visible certain weaknesses become. The ones that seemed so small from great distance... I had huge things I had to overcome. And so that small one, that, that minor transgression, didn't seem to bother me or prick my conscience at all. But now that I've overcome these other things and I'm getting closer and closer, now you can even take a little card, and if it's right up against your eyes, it can block your entire view. And even little sins can do that. So how do we grow? How do we progress? We recognize that our iniquities have separated us from God. And we just want to get rid of them, overcome them. He'll help you, I promise. Isaiah then says in verse 3 and 4, since there's so much that Judah, the people there, have to repent of, here's a good list for you. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. What a list. As he went through all those body parts, hands and fingers and lips and tongue, it's almost uh, the opposite of the initiatory. 
in which God is trying to bless every body part to fill the measure of its creation. These have all been prostituted to false purposes. And then when he speaks of nobody even calling for justice, nobody's speaking for or pleading for truth, instead they trust in vanity and speak lies, conceiving mischief, bringing forth iniquity. Again, Isaiah chose his words very intentionally to conceive and to bring forth. He's used a lot of mother imagery in the past. This one's an odd one, though. You conceive mischief. Well, let it grow up, and what does it become? become? It brings forth iniquity. James would say something similar in the New Testament, that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So there we see how temptation forms. There's hunger, okay, you, you're drawn away of your own lust, and you're enticed. There's some bait. Think about fishing. Okay? Do you have any uh, bait on your hook? And secondly, are the fish hungry at all? Or are they just not biting? Okay, drawn away and enticed, and then what happens? Then, when lust hath conceived, same word, it bringeth forth sin. And that's the same word that Isaiah used also. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So James just gave us the evolution there. From conception, to birth, to growing up, and to dying. In fact, that's what was hatching all along, was death. From lust, to sin, to spiritual death. You want to talk about separation from God? That's the ultimate example of it. Now, speaking of hatching, Isaiah goes on, in verse 5 and 6, they hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Think about, again, powerful imagery on Isaiah's part. To hatch cockatrice eggs? A cockatrice is a venomous serpent. And, and he talks about that, breaking out into a, a viper. If you, if you saw some eggs, they hadn't hatched yet, and you wonder, I wonder what's in there. And if someone were to tell you, oh, those are poisonous serpents. Yeah, I don't think I'd want them to hatch. Now's a, a far easier time to dispose of them than when they're out of the shell with lives of their own. What are we doing when temptation is first conceived? Do we nip it in the bud? Or do we let them incubate? Do we provide for them the time and the heat to be able to hatch and step out into the world where they can start really acting on us? We have to be more careful about this stage between conception and birth, between laying the egg and hatching it. We've talked about this before, the old proverb that you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you don't have to let it build its nest there. Uh, Elder Maxwell used to talk about thermostats of temptation that we largely control, that we get to decide largely how intense will this temptation be because I keep entertaining the thought and pretty soon it starts entertaining me. Sounds like I need to go back to chapter 58 and do some more fasting, right? To get a little bit more self-control and self-restraint so that when a thought first pops into my head and it's just the bird landing, 
and I can shoo it away. It's just the, the egg being laid, and it wasn't a bird egg. This was a cockatrice. And as I realize what's behind the shell, I do not want it to hatch. I don't want conception to become birth because I know what it grows up to do to me, and that's to spiritually destroy me. It's spiritual death. I love that Isaiah is cautioning, cautioning us here. There's the eggs. Then the webs, another great image. Oh, to step into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. The, it's just a spider's web. Those are so easy to just wipe away. Well, not if you're the small fly and the spider is bigger than you think. Think about the way Nephi says it. In 2 Nephi chapter 26, that Satan leads us by the neck with a flaxen cord until he binds us with his strong cords forever. A flaxen cord. That's just a spider web. But let it keep getting looped around and around and around. And before you know it, the eggs have hatched. The vipers are biting. You are caught in a web that feels more like a, a strong chain. And there's no escaping, minus the atonement of Christ. Isaiah goes on in verse 7 and 8. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. That doesn't sound like a slow descent into sin, does it? Running to evil, making haste to shed innocent blood. No, this is a, a headlong rush into iniquity, which seems to suggest that sin has been normalized to the point in society that there's nobody putting on the brakes. No, they're hitting the gas and want to speed right in that direction. That's a scary world to live in. And sadly, I think it's describing ours pretty well. There's no judgment. There's no peace. It's just crooked everywhere you look. Then in verse 9 and 10, as a result, therefore is judgment far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. I mean, it's trying. It's trying to catch up. But we're running away from it as fast as we can. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. And then this powerful image. We grope for the wall like the blind. And we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. Have you ever been in the chapel or the cultural hall when the lights are off at church? Uh, maybe you're the one closing up the building at the end of the day. Uh, maybe you're just there to set something up and, and you're the first one there and none of the lights are on. It's, it's a little scary. Uh, it, it's actually really interesting to be in wide open spaces like the cultural hall when the lights are completely out. You'd think, well, I've got plenty of space. I know this is a large area, so I'm fine. But in some ways, it's even scarier because I have no idea where, are there chairs set up? Am I going to trip over something? Watch what people do. Actually, you can't see them. It's dark. So just do it yourself. <laughs> okay? And what ends up happening, usually you walk really slowly. Your hands are extended 
kind of reaching out into the darkness in hopes that you feel the obstacle before you trip over it. And really, what's the hope? I want to find the wall. I love, Isaiah gets this and he's describing it so perfectly. Picture a blind person groping for the wall. What I'm after are my limits. It's not, I get to run around because this room is so big. I'm scared to death of smashing into something. And so I need to know where those limits are. Think about raising little children and they're pushing your limits. Why? Because they want to find out where they really are. And once I can feel safe and secure within the confines of covenant, within the, the limits the Lord has set, oh, okay, then I'm, I can, I, now the light's starting to come on. I know where I'm supposed to be. Elder Holland said that about children uh, and about students, that second only to our love, they need our limits. Otherwise, they will be in the dark and they'll be groping, wishing someone would tell them the difference between right and wrong. Our world today is pretty blind. And, and sadly, we have the light of the world that could change all of it. If we would let our light so shine, if we wouldn't be so scared of, of the pinpoints of brilliant illumination that we, pro we could provide, what a difference in the world it could be for people who are groping wishing they could see the obstacles that we're so aware of. So let it shine, my friends. In verse 11, he goes on, We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none, for salvation, but it is far off from us. Oh, what's with the bears and the doves? It's interesting to see people with false courage, roaring like bears. There'll be no consequences of sin. We're fine. Nothing can hurt us. And then when the consequences actually come, they're not very bear-like anymore. Now they're more like doves. And they are mourning, cooing, oh, not quite as courageous as before. Elder Maxwell put it this way, the laughter of the world is merely loneliness pathetically trying to reassure itself. There's the roar of the bear trying to mask what's going on on the inside, which is dove-like fear of, of what's really out there. In verse 12, he says, For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. What an admission. I mean, we've been trying to to quell the calls of conscience for a long time, but it's down there somewhere. I'm not completely past feeling. And though society has tried to convince me that good is evil and evil is good and sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet and everything else, Isaiah talked about way back in, what was that, chapter 5? We know better. And I know my iniquity. That's actually a good thing, because now that I acknowledge it, I can repent of it. Will they choose to do so? I don't know. Or is this finally an admission too late? I know what I've been doing was wrong. That's the sense that Jacob gives you in 2 Nephi chapter 9. When the day of repentance has passed and judgment is being passed upon a person and they admit that they're getting what was coming and that they knew better 
The way that Jacob says it is so powerful. This is 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 46. Prepare your souls for that glorious day when justice shall be administered unto the righteous, even the day of judgment. A glorious day, judgment? Yeah, if on the righteous side it is. But what about the others? That ye may not shrink with awful fear, that ye may not remember your awful guilt in perfectness, and be constrained to exclaim, Holy, holy are thy judgments, O Lord God Almighty, but I know my guilt. I transgress thy law, and my transgressions are mine. The devil hath obtained me that I am a prey to his awful misery. That's what comes to my mind when I hear Isaiah say, on behalf of the non-repentant, as for our iniquities, we know them. I held on to them. That's the irony of the way Jacob says it. Thy judgments are holy. You, you did the right thing. This is, you're administering justice. This is totally fair. I'm getting what I deserve. My transgressions are mine. I remember once reading that going like, well, duh. Whose else would they be? Of course they're yours. My transgressions are mine. That's just redundant. And then the Spirit taught me a powerful thing. In answer to my question, whose else would they be? Think about it. They would have been Christ's. He kept asking us to give them to him. And if we only had done so and relinquished our hold on our worst selves, then our transgressions wouldn't have been ours. Christ would have taken them and suffered for them so we wouldn't have to. Oh no, the day will come where we will know our sins. We need to repent. He goes on in 13 and 14, in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. There's more conception, right? What, what's being hatched in that heart of yours? Words of falsehood. What ha happens as a result then? Judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off. Picture judgment and justice being so horrified by what they see that they can't even bear to look at it. Because what's the scene? For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Imagine someone innocent falling, or even worse, being attacked, being assaulted, and people standing around horrified by what they see, but not doing anything to, to stop it, to change it, to rescue this innocent victim. In a way, that's what Isaiah is describing here, where judgment and justice are usually the ones that should come rushing in. And that's the police, right? Come and save this person. But if they have been so demoralized and de moral might be the right word here, where I don't have anything to do with this. And they're washing their hands of it and saying, well, this is, seems to be what society wants. They don't want us here enforcing things. There's no standard. And in a day of demoralization, in a day of the delegitimization of divine law, in a day of moral relativism where people can do just about anything they want, when justice has, is standing afar off, powerless to make a difference, when judgment is turning away backwards, because if I see it, I'm going to know something's wrong, but nobody cares about what I think anymore. 
then what a tragedy when truth falls and equity can't even come in to the scene. I, I pray for a different day as we try to stand for what is right. We need to coax judgment and justice back onto the scene. Do it lovingly, but we've got to do it. Otherwise, verse 15 and 16, Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. That's an interesting phrase. The people that are trying to do what's right, they're departing from evil, but what's the result? They've made themselves a prey? When the wicked rule, the people mourn, it says elsewhere in Scripture. Imagine the righteous being so taken advantage of and no one there to do them justice. This is when the whole system is so corrupt that the righteous have become a prey to the wicked. Keep going. And the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Well, go figure, since he's judgment personified. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. Now, that's a powerful ending there. When he saw that there was no man and wondered, picture that, no one man enough or woman enough to be able to stand up and, and call evil evil. There's no one to stand up for divine standards. No one there to call a spade a spade. And it's shocking to God. He wonders, it says. And the word there in Hebrew means stunned or appalled or horrified. Because no, no one's coming to make a difference. There is no intercessor, he says. Interesting. Since that would be one of the Redeemer's roles. To intercede He's asking us to do that, to join him in that. And if we don't do it, then what's he say? I'll do it myself. My arm will bring salvation. We'll see that again taught powerfully in Ezekiel chapter 34. That if the shepherds won't care for the sheep, then I'll do it myself. And if you won't stand for righteousness, then righteousness will come roaring back in. Want to talk about a bear? Well, here's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we need to prepare the world for his coming. Verse 17, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and an helmet of salvation upon his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. In Ephesians chapter 6, and in Doctrine and Covenants section 27, we learn about the armor of God. But that seems to be armor he puts on us. This is the armor of God in terms of the armor God himself wears. And it's very similar to what he clads us with. The breastplate of righteousness, that's the same for us as for him. The helmet of salvation, that's the same for us as for him. But when he describes the garments of vengeance, yikes, we'll see that personified a little bit more clearly in another chapter. But to see the Lord of hosts, el Señor de los ejércitos, the Lord of the armies, and his garments are the garments of vengeance, his cloak is zeal. Oh, and it flaps behind him in the breeze as he comes rushing forth to judgment. We need to be prepared for that and join him in the army. In verse 18 and 19, according to their deeds, Accordingly, he will repay. 
There's judgment. There's the law of the harvest. Fury to his adversaries. Recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will repay recompense over and over. All these rhymes. It's going to come. You reap what you sow. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. So there's west to east and everything in between. They will know when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Powerful ending there. Here comes the enemy flooding in with its iniquity. And what will stand against him? The spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard. Now think about that. The Spirit will be that standard. God will lift an ensign to the nations. Right? We will uh, let our light so shine. But there's something about the Spirit of the Lord that starts pushing back that darkness as it comes flooding in. It's the Spirit within people. Again, it's the call of conscience. And when that is troubled, I, I'll put it this way. I love this verse in section 35 of the Doctrine and Covenants that says in the final days, when things are, are, are on the downward spiral spiritually, it says that there will be none that doeth good except those who are prepared for the fullness of the gospel. Now that's an amazing statement. Wait, no one's doing good except people that are prepared. That's how we can spot the, the righteous. That's how we can tell, oh, the golden investigators out there. Who is it that's prepared for the fullness? People that somehow are still holding on to light when there isn't that much of it left. The people that are heeding the call of conscience and the Spirit is lifting up a standard within them to push back against this flood of evil that seems to be sweeping everyone else downstream. Do you notice people outside our church who are countercultural? Well, they're living according to light whatever amount they happen to have. And that will become increasingly countercultural as culture continues to deteriorate. What a blessing when we can introduce them to not just the fullness of the gospel that they are prepared for, but the fact there's a lot more people out there than they realize that are trying to live that way too. That's good news. And then the best news, verse 20 and 21. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. What ends this flood of darkness? Well, the coming of the light. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Turn, that's the word for repentance. You're turning from transgression. He will come to you because you're coming to him. As for me, he says, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. What a blessing he's promising us. Not just for us, but for our children, and our children's children, and their children, and on henceforth and forever. Can you imagine raising a righteous posterity that is immune from the iniquity of the world? Why? Because they put on the whole armor of God, just like he did. And in this verse, because they're also wielding the sword. All the armor that we see is defensive only. But you do get one offensive weapon, and that's the sword. And what does the sword represent? The sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. 
Oh, the word makes it strong. The spirit makes it sharp. And that sharper than a two-edged sword to the dividing asunder of joint and marrow, that's the word of God. No wonder he's so often depicted as having a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Well, the same promise is for the rest of us. It's his spirit and his word. That's the sword. It comes out of their mouths. And my prayer is that my children learn to speak that word and rely on that spirit to the point that they can raise their children and they can raise theirs. And so till the final day, we have a righteous remnant that is wielding the sword of truth and, and righteousness, the spirit and the word to stand up against the flood of iniquity that is bearing down on us. Chapter 59 of Isaiah is powerful. It's daunting recognizing what we're up against, what Isaiah was up against. He'd already seen the northern kingdom scattered. And he's trying to prepare the southern kingdom to avoid destruction. But Babylon's going to come flooding in. Will there be people righteous enough to combat it? Well, if they have the spirit and the word, the answer will be yes. But not just because of what they do. It's what the, what the, what I, the promise was at the beginning of that verse. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. And that's the message of Isaiah chapter 60. It begins with this magnificent chiasmus. If you thought that synonymous parallelism was interesting, or the catabasis or anabasis, these crescendos and decrescendos of repeated rhymes, those are impressive, but nothing seems to be more amazing than chiasmus, because what chiasmus is, is you're working your way in and then working your way back out in reverse order. And so it comes from the Greek letter X uh, because it looks like half of an X as you, as you look at it because the first and the last line are rhymes and the second to li line and the second to last line are rhymes. And then the third line rhymes with the third to last line. And it's that middle that is the, the focal point. Well, here's the chiasmus in Isaiah 60, verse 1, 2, 3. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Now the passage can stand alone with beautiful eloquence, even in our King James translation. But to see visibly what Isaiah is doing there, if you're watching this, you'll be able to see this. The first word, arise, and the last word, rising. The, the, work your way in one step, shine, and that rhymes with kings to the brightness. Thy light is come, rhymes with the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the glory Rhymes with, his glory shall be seen upon thee. Who's the Lord? That appears in both halves of the rhyme. It's risen upon thee. Upon thee shall arise. And what's the middle couplet? Darkness shall cover the earth. Let me rhyme it immediately. Gross darkness will cover the people. That's what we saw back in chapter 59. Gross Darkness affecting and infecting every body part. Justice and judgment standing back aghast, unable to do a thing about it. No wonder it takes the Redeemer to intervene. 
No wonder he must come to bind the adversary. To rally the troops because it seemed like we were waging a losing cause. We aren't. But it will require the Redeemer to come and bring his glorious light. To arise and shine like lights in the world. We have to be that. He will be the ultimate example of that. He says in verse 4 and 5, Lift up thine eyes round about and see. We finally can since the light is back. All they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far. Thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Sound like kings and queens becoming nursing fathers and nursing mothers? Sound like gathered Israel being scooped up in their arms and carried upon their shoulders? Sound like who hath begotten me these? Here they come. They are gathering themselves together because they see the light. It's no longer the blind groping for the wall. Not only can I see the walls, but I see the source of their illumination. And they will come running. He says, then thou shalt see and flow together. Remember all nations flowing uphill to the mountain of the Lord? They see it. It's that beacon of light. It's the ensign to the nations. The city set on a hill cannot be hid. So they see it. They flow together. Thine heart shall fear and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. How oh, the gathering of Israel is described in such magnificent terms. He expands that in verse 6 and 7. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. Sounds almost like the wise men coming from the east with their gold and incense and myrrh. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Oh, camels and dromedaries and flocks and rams might not mean much to us. The geographic locations that he listed there, they, they might not ring any bells for us either. But talk of glorifying the house of God's glory. Yeah, that should be familiar to a Latter-day Saint audience. As more and more holy houses of the Lord are dotting the earth in preparation for the coming of Christ. We are building temples because they are the strongest of stakes to hold up the tent of Zion. We are building temples so that people can come running and find the safety and security that reigns there. We are teaching the Sabbath as a preparation to be able to come in. We are trying to shine a light there so that all nations can flow uphill. It's amazing. And they will come. They are coming. In verse 8 and 9, Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? Surely the isles shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them unto the name of the Lord thy God and to the Holy One of Israel because he hath glorified thee. Like doves to their windows? Think about a, a homing pigeon that somehow, no matter how far they've been carried off, 
they can find their way back. There's something within them that can heed the call of home and fly however far they must to reach that destination. If you remember last year in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we talked about tuning forks and homing beacons. That because the light of Christ is within every child of God that's ever been born on this planet, when God strikes a chord with his tuning fork, that perfect pitch resonates within the souls of the sons and daughters of God. And if they will just respond to it and seek the source of that sound, that spirit, they will find themselves closing the gap and getting closer to God, growing toward Him, and He will then introduce them to the covenant that will bring them back into His presence. I love that passage in section 84. And I get that sense here as these doves are flying to the windows, as sons and daughters are being carried home. We get to be a part of that as we let our lights so shine. In verse 10 and 11, we're not the only ones involved. The sons of strangers shall build up thy walls. These are outsiders, people that were supposed to be on the other side of the wall. Oh, no, no, now they're on the inside and they're building it up. Outsiders have become insiders now. No more strangers and foreigners. They're fellow citizens with the saints. Their kings shall minister unto thee. Wow, the, talk, another role reversal. We went from outside to inside. Now we go from high to low. Kings, the chief, have now become servants of all, just like Jesus hoped that they would. He says, For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. We saw that last week. It was but a small moment that you felt forsaken. But with everlasting kindness have I gathered thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. Gates open continually. Well, I mean, of course, if the strangers are on the, on the inside now, we, of course we want them here. We want to gather all. Our walls were never meant to keep people out. It was meant to keep the wickedness of the world out so that people could come in and feel the safety and security of Zion within. The gates, oh, they're open. So come. John, in the book of Revelation, must have been channeling his inner Isaiah because he teaches similar things about the celestial city. In Revelation 21:25, the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Usually it's nighttime you close off, the, close down, close, shut the gates and bring up the drawbridge, right? Uh, hunker down because you don't know what enemies are prowling out there under cover of darkness. Well, there is no darkness. Arise and shine. God's light has come. And this everlasting day, there's no enemy. Come. And the gates are open wide. In fact, that phrase appears in a beautiful song. We've been listening to a lot of music through Isaiah. If you want another masterpiece, this one's called The Holy City. It was sung at President Hinckley's birthday party years ago. 
and it's one that I got to sing with the Jerusalem Center Choir when I was a student studying abroad in Israel 25 years ago. It's so beautiful as it speaks of the Holy City at three different time periods. Uh, the ancient time period, the time of Christ, and then the final day when Old Jerusalem meets New Jerusalem. And in that verse, speaking of the New Jerusalem as the celestial city, the line says, The light of God was on its streets, the gates were open wide, and all who would might enter, and no one was denied. Forgive me for getting emotional with that line, but I always do because of the people I was singing to with the rest of our choir. It was an auditorium full of Palestinians and Israelis sitting side by side. Muslims and Jews intermingled throughout that, that beautiful room in a city with walls and gates, in a country that is doing its best to try to keep out things that it fears but it's hurting people on both sides of the, of the divide. And to be in a room where enemies were sitting together as friends and Muslims and Jews sitting there as a bunch of Christians sang to them about a holy city with gates that everyone could enter and no one denied. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints better be. We better have wide open gates and strangers brought in knowing that there's safety and security here. So sing it. Sing it out. In verse 12 and 13, For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, the box together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Again, we're back to the temple, and it's returning to its, its glorious state of cedar and gold construction, like we learned back in the days of Solomon. The cedars of Lebanon, the glory of Lebanon has returned to beautify God's sanctuary. I love how he calls it the place of my feet, because what did we see last week in Isaiah 52? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that publish peace. Well, the mountain of the Lord is the temple, and here is the place of my feet, and it is meant to be glorious. We can help make it so. So can people from outside that are bringing their gifts, their gold, their incense, all that they have to offer. In verse 14 and 15, The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee. Former enemies are now becoming friends. All they that despised thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet. People that were looking down on us with pride are now bowing. And we're not looking down on them with pride. We better not be. And they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We'll be known for that. And whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, well, but for a small moment, so that no man went through thee, Oh, not anymore. I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. It's interesting to see old downtowns. And in so many places, those are, it's a dilapidated, it, it's a scary place to be. 
and to see what happens when downtowns are revitalized. It's amazing to see what, what happens in a community. Uh, and often that happens when the young start moving in. To think of a rising generation, a rising and shining, that the world may see their light, to the point that the world will know this is the city of the Lord. This is the Zion of the Holy One of Israel, and it is eternally excellent. Is there more room to move in? Yes, there's room for all. No gates. No gates. The gates are open wide. He then says in verse 16, Thou shalt also suck the milk of the Gentiles, and shalt suck the breast of kings. We're back to nursing fathers and nursing mothers again. And thou shalt know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thou shalt know that I am the Lord. That's Exodus talk, right? To a Pharaoh that refuses to acknowledge the God of Israel. Now we're thinking of the Babylonian onslaught. Will they know? Well, someday they will. As Elder Maxwell says, what an irony that the so-called post-Christian era will end with the coming of Christ. It'll happen. Then in verse 17 and 18, For brass I will bring gold. For iron I will bring silver. For wood, brass, and for stones, iron, I will also make thy officers peace and thine exactors righteousness. This is upgrades all over. <laughs> it used to be brass. Well, let's upgrade it and change it out for gold. No more iron. Let's use silver. Everything we have is improving. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders. But thou shalt call thy walls salvation and thy gates praise. These walls that even strangers are helping to construct, what is it that's keeping out the enemy? It's salvation and the hope of salvation we have here. And then the gate, what is it that grants people entrance? Oh, that's praise. Come and worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Come and step into the place of his beautiful feet. You'll find yourself praising too. And then 19 and 20, the sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy morning shall be ended. Beautiful rhymes especially based on the chiasmus that we started with, arise and shine. There's no more darkness to grope around in. God is here. Christ, the light of the world is here. And so, son, <laughs> you're no longer needed. Uh, have you ever, I, I see this all the time when my, my kids are notorious for leaving lights on. And there are times where the windows are open uh, and it's a brilliant noonday sun. And I will go turn off the lights to save electricity. And there is absolutely no difference in the brightness of the room. It's like, did you not know that the light bulbs weren't doing a thing? Imagine if we could say that of the sun or the moon or the stars. They have been eclipsed by an infinitely greater light. Again, John builds on that in the book of Revelation where he says, The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Even back to that song, The Holy City, 
it builds on the same message. No need of moon or stars by night or sun to shine by day. It was the new Jerusalem that would not pass away. What a song. The chapter then ends in 21 and 22. Thy people also shall be all righteous. That's a far cry from what we saw in the previous chapter. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. And the Joseph Smith translation changes one word. I, the Lord, will hasten it in my time. Have you sensed the hastening of the work? The Doctrine and Covenants speaks of that several times. Uh, President Nelson seems to be trying to get us all to move a little faster, to lengthen our stride. That was President Kimball. Uh, to to quick, quicken our step, uh, to move forward. We are part of an ever-accelerating restoration. Uh, the field is white, all ready to harvest. It, it's time to get going. And in our day particularly, I, we sense a hastening of the work. No wonder President Nelson told us to eat our vitamins. We're going to need it. Okay? Uh, the work of his hands, the branch of his planting, it is glorious. And he is hastening his work in his time. Chapter 61 follows with one of the most beautiful metaphors I think you could ask for in Scripture. Go figure, it comes from Isaiah, the master of metaphors. Uh, it starts with a, a set of verses that Jesus himself quotes as he's beginning his ministry. He's back in Nazareth. He is at his own hometown synagogue. And people know him there. This is the carpenter's kid. And there's, there's Jesus sitting there listening to other people preach in the synagogue. And then it, he decides to take a turn himself. He asks for the Isaiah scroll and scrolls his way to what is now chapter 61, and he reads the first two verses to the people that are there. When he's done, he closes the book, or folds back up the scroll, and then sits down. You see, if you're speaking for God, then you stand up. You're reading scripture, right? If you're just speaking for yourself, you sit back down, because you're definitely on a lower level than God is. Well, I guess Christ could have stayed standing, since he's the one speaking either way. But having just quoted what he said to Isaiah 700 years earlier, he then gives his take on it. And all eyes are fastened on him. What's he going to say? Because the first two verses of Isaiah 61 are as clearly messianic as anything you could ask for. And his audience that day in the Nazareth synagogue knew it. So, hmm, Carpenter's kid is reading the messianic prophecy. And as soon as he's talked about this Messiah that will come, what's he going to say about it? Does he know something we don't know? Well, you better believe it. And what does Jesus say in that moment as the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him? Well, he began to say unto them, and he can only begin to say it because as soon as he says these words, every mouth is going to start moving and whispering and wondering. He began to say unto them, this day, is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? And that's a mic drop. <laughs> that is a messianic announcement. That is Christ letting his fellow people of Nazareth know it's go time. 
and my ministry, it's time for it to begin. All of these messianic hopes, the, those that are waiting for the consolation in Israel, it's like Simeon at the temple, it's time to go because it's my time to come. What had he just read? I mean, it, the aftermath of this in Luke chapter 4 is fascinating. Okay, we'll, we'll read that next year. Uh, but what had he read that got all eyes fastened on him? What had he read that would say, it's go time? This verse is now being fulfilled as we speak, as I speak, because I'm the one these verses are speaking about. Isaiah 61 verse 1 and the beginning of 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me. What's Messiah mean in Hebrew? The anointed one. The Spirit is upon me. The, the Lord hath anointed me. To do what? To do everything I'm about to start doing. To preach good tidings unto the meek. Good tidings is the gospel. The good news. The good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. Preach the good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's what he's, he's beginning to unroll. Arise and shine, he's coming. The day of the, the acceptable year of the Lord, it's here. And the good tidings weren't just sung by the angels or spread by the shepherds. They have found their embodiment in Jesus of Nazareth, about to go forth to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. I'm going to free you from sorrow. I'm going to break the chains of death and hell. No more spider webs. No more cockatrice eggs. I'm here to help you home. The great gatherer of Israel. It, it's, it's, it's go time. And so he goes on in verse 2 and 3. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. To give unto them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. These are role reversals, one after the next. If you remember way back in Isaiah chapter 3, where he took the daughters of Zion and turned them inside out to say, you think you have well-said hair, actually inside you're bald. You think you smell wonderful with your perfume. No, it's actually a stench in the nostril. Uh, you think you have these, these beautiful clothing, but no, it is nakedness and filth. Well, now it's, he's reversing all of that. That instead of having... Once you come to yourself and realize what you've been, once you come and acknowledge your sin and repent of it, then I can change it all back. It's not just that I'm turning you back, right side in, out and inside in. It's that I'm cleansing you. There's nothing to hide anymore. And so instead of having this spirit of heaviness, what are you wearing? It's not sackcloth and ashes. It's the garment of praise. 
No more mourning. Now it's nothing but joy. And the most beautiful of them all, where you had nothing but ash, God can convert that into beauty. We saw that when the Provo Tabernacle burned. And I believe that's the title of that temple now, the Provo City Center Temple. It is beauty from ashes. And what an incredible, talk about a glorious place for, the, for God's feet. And God does that with all of us, if we're willing to offer him the ash. I think I've shared this with some of you before, but I had a student years ago in seminary, one of the greatest artists I've ever known. And since then, he's worked on temples, and he's worked on stained glass windows, and he's worked on painting and sculpting, and you name the medium, he can do it. Now he's working with, with media and doing amazing things with that. And it's actually, it's the same young man that I told you about that painted that masterpiece about David and Goliath. Remember that one? I showed you the picture. Uh, so, so good. Well, he blew me away one year when uh, he decided to make a sculpture out of crackers. Because why not? I mean, I've never sculpted out of crackers before, and that sounds like an interesting medium. So I don't know how he did it, but it was lifelike. And I mean, he used, I think, veggie straws to, to, as the hair because it looked like it was like blowing in the wind. And somehow used, uh, I don't know, Ritz and uh, all kinds of other crackers and, and somehow made this human head. And I'm thinking, who does this? And again, for him, it was like, well, I've kind of tried everything else and it's too easy. I'm going to try something different. Well, imagine an artist of that caliber asking you for your ash. Oh, you should see what I can do with it. It's going to be something amazing. You see, God doesn't believe in creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. He believes in refashioning existing material. He just needs the material. And usually that comes from us. And will we offer him Mourning, so he can turn it into praise? Will we offer him our heaviness so he can turn that into joy? Will we offer him our ash? Can you imagine that? We can consecrate anything. We can even give God our sins. He'll turn them into something greater. We can offer him our, our sorrows and our suffering. And he will beautify and glorify it. We can even, even offer him our ash. I don't have anything much to give you, God. These are the remains of my burned out hopes. Where nothing happened the way I hoped that they would. Or I set fire to my own spirituality. I've, I'm a burned out shell of who you intended for me to be. And with a smile on his face. And wiping the tear from our eye, he'll say, oh, no, no, you, you have material, you have matter. And ash is one of my favorite mediums, if you'll give it to me. And I will craft something beautiful out of it. Just wait and see. The Provo City Center Temple is an architectural wonder, considering what it used to be. It was never intended to be a temple. They had to do all kinds of creative things to squeeze it all in and fit it. Oh, because it had a different function. But talk about a glorified one now. And God will do the same. Don't chain yourself to a past and all of its regrets. Move forward. 
Give God whatever you have left, and he will turn it into something glorious. I've seen it. In verse 4 and 5, he then makes this promise. And they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. You hear those rhymes over and over, as if we didn't believe it. I've got to tell you again then, and I'll tell you again. This is the dilapidated downtown given new life. This is the ghost town now becoming this, oh, this active hub with so many people coming together. This is the gathering of scattered Israel. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Can you think of Paul speaking to Gentiles being gathered into the fold? That you are no more strangers or foreigners. You are fellow citizens with the saints. That's the strangers and the aliens. They've come and are treated no different than those that were born in the covenant. He says in verse 6 and 7, But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Yeah, even you, aliens, even you, strangers. We want, this is a priesthood of all believers like you wouldn't believe. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame, all that you went through in the past, look down upon, ye shall have double, a double portion, a birthright portion. And for confusion, instead of that, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. Oh, God will more than make it up to us. Compensatory blessings that will eclipse every sorrow, every loss. That's, that's his promise. And we can bank on it. In verse 8 and 9, For I, the Lord, love judgment. I mean, yeah, admittedly, it may come slowly, but it will always come. I love it. On the other hand, I hate robbery for burnt offering. So what will I do? I will direct their work in truth. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. I love this. Think about what he's saying here. I'm going to direct the work in truth. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant. And all these compensatory blessings, the, the, the confusion that you suffered, the shame that you endured. Oh no, now everyone knows. Where'd you get all this? You have double. Well, it's the birthright. And it's here for you. He didn't give me double because I'm better. He gave me double so I can provide for everyone else. And it's for you now. So please come into the kingdom. But this sense of their offspring, it says their seed, their offspring, the seed which the Lord hath blessed. And everyone notices and recognizes this. Like, I mean, this is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If everyone's calling you ministers of God and priests of the Lord, you finally lived up to the potential God saw in you way back in Exodus chapter 19 before he even gave you the Ten Commandments. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're living up to your privilege. You're assuming your greatest identity and your children they're amazing and the way he says it their seed shall be known among the gentiles everybody's going to know their offspring they're going to look at them and go oh though, though that's the seed which the lord has blessed now i chuckle at this because my grandma uh, granny wilcox we lovingly called her 
just one of the sweet uh, souls, one of the one of the deepest, kindest, most committed Latter Day Saints I've ever known. And she loved posterity. She loved her kids. She loved her grandkids. I watched her or play with her great grandkids with as much energy as she played with me when I was little. And, and just like, man, grandma hasn't slowed down at all. She was cut from the cloth of President Nelson, okay, and lived into her mid-90s also. And I just remember whenever we would do something good as teenagers or even as, as parents, or they'd see, she'd, she'd see the grandkids or great-grandkids do anything, she would always just get a big smile on her face and say, oh, here I am just basking in reflected glory. And I was, that always made me feel good that like, wait, you mean I'm giving you some glow uh, and I did something that you're proud of, Grandma, and you're just basking in it? Just today, I was watching two of my cousins make a presentation at BYU and I was just sat back in, so impressed with these two cousins of mine, uh, these women of faith and power and they're incredible, and they were presenting at the business school, and I could just see the whole class in front of them, in front of them. Just, I want to be like you when I grow up. And I turned to their mother, who was there visiting also, uh, my aunt, and just whispered to her at one point, "Your girls are amazing." And and I just sat there, basking in reflected glory. I'm related to these ladies. It's amazing. I again talked, was laughing with my aunt, saying. Picture Grandpa Halverson, because this is on the Halverson side, uh, up there in heaven looking down and seeing he was an educator his whole life. He's, the family business was deep with him. And seeing his kids there in classrooms teaching, his, his grandkids, oh, I'm sure he was basking in reflected glory too. There's something beautiful about your kids just doing things that, that leave the world in awe. And that's the kind of children God is going to raise within the homes of Zion. So that even the Gentiles look and jaw dropped. Your kids are amazing. They are. In verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. How could we not? My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. To be clothed, and how does he rhyme it? To be covered. Remember, covered is the word for atonement. Remember, covering is what God gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, to cover their nakedness. Clothing, and what kind of clothing here? Garments of salvation, robes of righteousness. And for us to see what God is willing to clothe us in, those robes belong to him. They're the robes of his righteousness. And what are we getting dressed up for? As a bridegroom and a bride. God is providing the wedding garments there's some parables in the New Testament where he'll do just that. But here, honestly, I don't know if I've ever seen anything more beautiful in my whole life. If I can relive this day in the, in the next life, I, I would. The, the day I was sealed to my wife, and after just a soul-expanding experience in the sealing room, 
to go back to the changing area and change into my tuxedo for the wedding pictures. And she went into her dressing room and changed into her wedding dress. And I just sat there in the celestial, excuse me, in the San Diego temple at the foot of the grand staircase. That's one of the entire towers is the staircase. And I just sat there waiting for my wife. Ah, pinch me. I have a wife now. I can't believe I'm married. And as she walked out with this natural light flooding in from all directions through this grand tower at the foot of this impossibly beautiful staircase was a bride adorned in something far greater than jewels. She was adorned in purity and in preparation. She was adorned in righteousness and virtue. She was breathtaking to me. If I can live worthily of her in the eternities, it'll be worth it. But to see her in the robes of righteousness that God had provided her, and to be clothed in garments of salvation myself, this is what we're preparing for. This is the parable of the ten virgins. This is the parable of the marriage feast of the of the king. It's to understand what God is trying to prepare us for. The way he says it in verse 11, as the earth bringeth forth her bud, we're just starting. As the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, here they come. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Why do you think he planted these seeds of righteousness to begin with? The planting of the Lord. He knows that you reap what you sow. And so what did he sow? Us. What grows is whatever is planted. And what has he planted in each of us? Righteousness. Praise. Holiness. The seeds of divinity. And if we will let those hatch instead of the cockatrice eggs, if we can but grow up in God, then there will someday be a wedding feast in which Jehovah and Israel are finally sealed eternally, in which Christ and his church can finally be truly one. He has already offered us the robes of his righteousness. It's simply a matter for us to put them on and prepare for the wedding. When you understand what Isaiah has been describing all this time, the, the, for what we've studied today from 58 up through 61 so far, then these final chapters of Isaiah are such a climax and crescendo, such a last one more strain of praise, as we said back in the Psalms. Speaking, we talked about marriage in the last chapter, as the Lord provides us with our wedding clothing. Watch the marriage unfold in chapter 62. In verse 1 and 2, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace. I can't. I can't bite my tongue anymore. I just got to let everybody know about it. Okay? For Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. There's arise, shine, for thy light is come. There is eclipse the light of the sun and the moon and the stars. There is invite the light of the world into your life. 
Here it is. And, and we have to allow that to happen. The Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. That new name, that's what you get when you get married, right? That's what you get when you join a family. And to join the family of God, the house of Israel, the seed of Abraham, the church and covenant and kingdom, you are receiving a new name, your husband's name, your father's name. In verse 3 and 4, thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. Let's rhyme it. A royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, even though you may have felt that way for a small moment. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, though that's definitely how the Assyrians and Babylonians left it. But no, not anymore, because God can take ashes and turn it into beauty. He can take forsakenness and desolation and do what with it? Thou shalt be called, here's a part of your new name, Hepzibah. Thy land, new name for it, Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. That's interesting. The land is going to get married? Oh, sure. It's all part of the, the wedding package. All part of the wedding feast. The promised land. I guess we were just promised up to this point. It was kind of, we were, the land was engaged. But when the earth receives its paradisical glory, oh yeah, it's part of the wedding too. And everything gets a new name. New heaven, new earth, new names for everyone. And yeah, please don't call me desolate anymore. That's, that was just my maiden name. <laughs> What's my married name? Hepzibah. Hepzibah means my delight is in her, or delightful. We've gone from desolation to delight. And what does Beulah mean? Beulah means married wife or union. We've gone from forsaken to fused into one, a oneness with the Redeemer. There's a new name for you. You ready to join the family? In verse 5, for as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. I'm amazed at how often God turns to marriage symbolism to describe the relationship he wants to have with his people. This is an intimate relationship. This is a relationship forged in love and forgiveness and self-sacrifice and everything else that goes into a celestial marriage. The chance for us to be sealed to Christ in this kind of way. It's a profound blessing. He says in verse 6 and 7, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace, day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. Give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. I love that passage. I think of it when I see prophets and apostles in their advancing years still unable to, <laughs> to call, ever call it quits. If you think back to a very old Joseph B. Worthlin, unable to even stand at the pulpit until <laughs> a doctor <laughs> behind him, Dr. Russell M. Nelson, came rushing up and put his arm around him and basically held him up by the belt just so that Elder Worthen could, could finish his talk. That's amazing. Or when Howard W. Hunter lost his balance and fell backwards during a general conference. 
and friends on the Quorum of the Twelve ran up and propped him back up and helped him give his talk, not knowing that he had broken ribs in the fall. Oh, he didn't let on. These are watchmen on the tower that refuse to hold their peace. And I'm amazed at their endurance. I'm amazed at their focus to make sure that their, their mouths are never shut and their voices are never silenced. Keep not silence. Oh, you don't have to worry about me. I'll be the alarm clock with no snooze bar. <laughs> and that's the way prophets are. David B. Haight once said that when he was a kid, long, long ago, his dad was one of the first people in the neighborhood that got a, like a Model T. And he was too young to drive, uh, little David was. But he was just, I want to, what's it like to drive a car? Nobody has a car. What is this thing? And he learned how to crank it up and get it started. But he hadn't stuck around for the lesson on how to stop it. So one time when dad wasn't around, he went out and cranked up the car and jumped in and started driving and was in heaven. This is euphoria of movement and until he realized, I don't know how to stop this thing. What do, what do I do? And so he, had, he thought it was a wise choice in my mind. He just kept circling the block until the car ran out of gas. And then it slowly came to a stop and he got out and confessed to his dad in sackcloth and ashes, I'm sure. That to me, is the ultimate analogy for how prophets and apostles live their lives. There's no retirement. It's, I know how to start, I don't know how to stop, and so I will just keep serving around the block over and over until finally someday I run out of gas and come to a stop. On this side of the veil, anyway. I'll keep it going on the other. These are watchmen that will never hold their peace. And I sustain them with my heart as well as my uplifted hand. In verse 8 and 9, the Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. How's that for an uplifted covenant hand as well? Surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies. And the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for the which thou hast labored. I get the sense of no more bullies stealing your lunch money. Okay, all this corn that you grew, it's not going to your enemies anymore. The wine that you cultivated, no, it's not going to the strangers. But they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord for the privilege. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. There's another nod to the temple. Justice has finally replaced injustice. We finally get to enjoy the fruits of our labors. And it's in the temple that all those wrongs are made right. In verse 10, go through, go through the gates. Come on in, they're open. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, say ye to the daughter of Zion, behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. We're back to that highway construction we saw in chapter 40. Valleys exalted, mountains made low, crooked made straight, rough made plain. This is John the Baptist's Audubon, <laughs> preparing the way for the Lord to come racing in. And we're trying to do the same for the second coming, as John did for the first. We're trying to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so prepare the way of the people. Cast up the, the highway, gather out the stones, lift up the standard, be that standard. 
and be an ensign to the nations. We get to do it every time we share the gospel, every time we go to the temple, every time we make a difference in someone's life. That's the work we're called to perform. In verse 12, then, he says, They shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and thou shalt be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Talk about new names, right? Talk about reflected glory. Talk about children being looked at, looked up to, like, wow, they turned out pretty well, didn't they? These people that were so forsaken before, looked down upon, are now sought out. That's an interesting title. Who are you? Oh, someone people are looking for. Uh, that's, that'd be interesting for missionaries to knock on the door. What are you doing here? Oh, I've been sought out. I'm sure you, you want me, even though you might not know that yet. Uh, but here I am, a holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and... I'm here to let you know he wants to redeem you too. Come to the wedding feast. I mean, you are the bride. You wouldn't want to miss it. <laughs> okay. Now that, that wedding is, is best. Well, it's, it becomes the ultimate example or analogy for the second coming. And the second coming is described in Isaiah 63 in magnificent ways. We've been seeing the marriage already, right? And, that, and so now we're going to see more clearly, this is what he's speaking of. Second coming of Christ, the, the Messiah will return. And in verse 1 and 2 of Isaiah 63, they ask the question, as they see the heavens open and someone descend, who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? And he responds, Oh, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, we're still confused. And it's about the clothing that we're most confused. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? What, 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 are, you, what are you wearing? This is an odd dress code for this particular wedding. And he's hinted at it throughout this whole introduction. Who is this that cometh from Edom? Now, there's a lot of play on words here with Isaiah, and he's the master to do it. Edom, on the one hand, this is Jacob and Esau. Edom is where Esau went to dwell. And what, what color is associated with Esau? Red. He was red and ruddy. Uh, and so here's some, a, a place that is associated with redness. It's also associated with worldliness. Another name for Edom is Idumea. And in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about God will come down in judgment upon Idumea, a.k.a. the world. So who's this that is coming out of the world? Out of the wicked world. And he's dressed as if it was quite the fight there. He's dressed in red. He's in dyed garments from Bozrah, which was a city within Edom. Now, this is glorious apparel. I mean, the red definitely catches the eye, okay? But why are you wearing that? Wherefore, why art thou red in thine apparel? I mean, it looks like you've been treading the wine press. Well, that's exactly right. I have been. I have been treading the wine press alone, and none were with me. I have been trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. No wonder Elder Maxwell said that when Christ comes, he will return in robes of reminding red. And what 
is that red meant to remind us of? That's our blood on his garments. Those are our stains that he is wearing as he returns. What are we wearing meanwhile? We're dressed in the robes of his righteousness. This is my wedding day. And these garments of salvation, this spotless white raiment, I'm wearing what belongs to you, and you're wearing what belongs to me. It's part of this magnificent role reversal, this trading of places that we've seen Isaiah speak about already. That's what he gets at in verse 3. Why are you in red? The Lord answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. That's the irony. Somehow, our blood stains his clothing. That makes sense. But his blood cleanses ours. And again, he wears the red so that we can wear the white. When I mention that line from the Battle Hymn of the Republic, he hath trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, that's what Isaiah 63 is hinting at. That's what Re uh, Revelation chapter 14 is hinting at. It's really Revelation 14 that describes these angels of destruction harvesting the fields and gathering out the grapes of wrath, which are then trampled out the way Revelation 14 ends. And the winepress was trodden without the city. Gethsemane was outside the city of Jerusalem. But it wasn't juice that flowed as this solitary figure was trampling out the grapes. No, blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles. Can you appreciate how deep that would be? And how far did it spread? By the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Spiritually speaking, symbolically that is, what is John describing? This is the atonement. This is Christ in Gethsemane, staining all of his raiment as he tries to get the, this juice out of the grapes, to get the sin out of us. Gethsemane means olive press, and he's being crushed under the weight of the sins and sufferings of all humanity. No wonder the, the blood that was spilled that came out of every pore, would reach up to the horse bridles. This is enough to immerse yourself in so that all of your clothing would be red like Edom, dyed like Bozrah, stained like him who treads the wine vat. And to the space of 1,600 furlongs, I did the math once, and that comes out to 200 miles and one time I went to my map section in my scriptures, put a dot in Jerusalem, and then measured out 200 miles, and then drew a circle. Because symbolically speaking, that's what John envisioned when it comes to the atonement of Christ. I was amazed by the size of that circle. Because, again, this didn't happen literally. L literally, yes, he bled from every pore, but... No human body can contain enough blood to cover that. 
but symbolically speaking, what is John describing? The circle I drew on my map meant that the blood would have flowed west into the Mediterranean, east into the Arabian Peninsula, south into the Red Sea, making it truly red, and north all the way up and beyond Lebanon. And as I looked at that circle and let the reality of Christ's suffering sink down into my soul, the thought crossed my mind, that blood covers all of Israel. And the Spirit confirmed that thought. You're exactly right. The blood of Christ covers all of Israel. No matter who you are or what you've done or how far you've gone, you're within that, that wine press. You're beneath the horse bridle. You're within the reach of his redemption. And to see when he comes in robes of reminding red, what will it remind us of? Not just of our sins. That's not what he's trying to rub in. It's those sins that he was able to rub out, but he's wearing it as a reminder of his love, of his compassion. I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. There's one reminder. Coming in robes of red, there's another. Who is this? This is the Lord of love. Then why all this talk of anger and fury? Well, verse 4, For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. We're back to what we saw earlier, that if no one else will do it, then I will. If you're forcing judgment and justice to stand away horrified, wondering, is no one going to do anything? Then Christ himself will do it. And you get the same sense there in this passage. I wondered that there was none to uphold. Is no one going to step up and do anything about this? Will no one defend me and my righteousness? Well, no wonder there is righteous indignation. No wonder there is justice and judgment that comes. But it's not what he intended. He came to bear our sins and carry our sorrows. He came to suffer the chastisement of our peace and take the stripes so that we could be healed. He came to offer mercy, and that's what Isaiah tells us in the next verse, verse 7. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord. Don't get caught up in the anger that was described in the previous passage. I'll mention the loving kindness. In fact, I'll mention it in as many different ways as I can, with as many different metaphors. I'll mention loving kindness, the praises of the Lord. I will sing them. I will paint them. I will describe them as best that I can. According to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. It's amazing that despite the, the strong language in verses 4, 5, and 6, God just can't stay angry. 
And so quickly he shifts to seven and eight with its loving kindness because we're his people. And he, you parents know what this is like, where it's just impossible to stay mad at your kids. You just see them and you know them and you love them and you forgive them. And if even we imperfect parents can do that, then imagine the loving father of us all who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to wear robes of red so we could wear robes of white. That's loving kindness for you. In verse 9, how did he do it? In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. There's that language again, to bear, to carry. There's a mother's love. One of Isaiah's favorite metaphors. His love, his pity, that's condescension. That's compassion. That's sharing in the suffering where there's pity now. I know what you're up against. I know what it's like to be mere flesh and have to struggle with mortality. And so, of course, I have compassion for you. In your affliction, I was afflicted. That's the great gift Christ received in Gethsemane. We received redemption. He received perfect empathy, which is what underwrites the atonement all along. He was afflicted in all of our affliction. How do we respond? Verse 10, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy. He didn't want to be. He fought against them. He didn't intend to. But then what happened? Again, he can't be mad for long, even though it's justified. Then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying, where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? that led him by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name, that led him through the deep as an horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. This is the God of the Exodus. That though the people felt forgotten and forsaken, God came rushing in and raised up a redeemer. He sent a Messiah in Moses and he'll do it again. This Emmanuel, he will come The first coming among the Jews under the Roman thumb. The second coming under a world that has returned to a Babylonian state. But he'll come. He'll remember the days of old. And he'll lead us to a promised land just as he did ancient Israel. In verse 14 and 15, as a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. That is the natural draw, right? That's where the animal wants to go, downhill. The Spirit of the Lord really does want us to rest if we'll just yield to its enticings. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Powerful language. If you're looking, if you're seeing us suffering here, then behold from the habitation of thy holiness. That's a great statement or a great title for the temple also. A habitation of holiness. But in God's zeal, in his strength, 
Let your bowels be filled with mercy. Are they restrained? Are you holding back in some way? Because I know you want to come to our rescue. My bowels are filled with mercy, Jesus says to the Nephites in 35.17. It's the guts. That's this visceral feeling. We say the heart. Ancient Jews said the, the bowels. Okay? And so this gut feeling of love and longing and being drawn to someone. Because I was afflicted right alongside you. I am filled with loving kindness and mercy and pity and love. The bowels of mercy. Do you remember when Enoch finally gets it? He's been, he, he misunderstands God. He doesn't understand why, how God could weep. You're perfect, even if we're not. Well, you're what matters to me, Enoch. And so, of course, how can I not weep? And once Enoch gets it, and he's afflicted with God's affliction, what does it say? Moses 7.41, Enoch knew and looked upon their wickedness and their misery and wept, just like God had and stretched forth his arms, just like Jesus would on the cross. And his heart swelled wide as eternity, and his bowels yearned, and all eternity shook. Oh, this is the sounding of the bowels. This is mercy unrestrained. And God wants to give it to us. Why? Because of covenant relationship. Verse 16, doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledges not, but thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. So even if it seems, this isn't true, but even if it seems like Abraham has completely forgotten that we're related, and Israel won't, <laughs> won't claim us as his own, no, someone far better he who claimed Abraham and Isaac and Israel originally claims us as well. God is our Father. And, and that's a relationship he will never forget. So in verse 17, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways? Now, he, he didn't. Joseph Smith corrects that. Why hast thou suffered us to err from thy ways? King James translators, why hast thou hardened our heart from thy fear? That's not right. God doesn't do that. So JST, why hast thou suffered us to harden our heart from thy fear? How could you let us do this? Well, it's called agency. And I have to honor it. But what else will I do? Keep reading. Return for thy servants' sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Israel is trying to remind God of something he doesn't need to be reminded about. But aren't we thy people? Oh, yes. Will you have me to be your God, though? Return for thy servant's sake. Oh, I'm, I never left. But you did. So will you return to me? That's called repentance. Uh, we didn't have the promised land very long. Well, you didn't keep the promises very long. You gave it to our enemies. Well, because you treated me like an enemy. But if you'll turn, yes, you're called by my name. And I, where's the bill of thy mother's divorcement? I haven't abandoned the family. Okay, I'm still here. Just come. And as you turn the page and look at Isaiah 64, 
He helps you see what that coming will entail and what God will do in that process. There's a beautiful image here about clay and God being the potter. Again, here's Isaiah, go figure. He's bringing up new metaphors, trying to help us envision our relationship with God. So he begins, 64, 1 and 2, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens. We're still talking second coming context. We want him to come. Okay, Rend, rip them apart. Tear the veil that separates us from thy presence. Rend the heavens that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth. The fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. This is a plea for the second coming. This is hasten the day. Again, this is John in Revelation 22, just pleading, even so come, Lord Jesus. Come, hasten thy work in thy time. I hope the time is now. He goes on in 3 and 4, When thou didst terrible things, which we looked not for, Thou camest down. The mountains flowed down at thy presence. So if you've done it in the past, do it again in the future. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Paul will rephrase that in his letter to the Corinthians. When he promises them that eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man, the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. If you can imagine heaven, then you're still not imagining good enough. If you can picture what God wants to give you, it still pales in comparison. And whether Paul is telling you that or Isaiah is saying it here, what has God prepared for those that are waiting for him? Oh, a wedding like you can't imagine. In verse 5, thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. That's a strange ending. Joseph Smith corrects it. In righteousness there is continuance, and such shall be saved. So are we preparing for that? Are we preparing ourselves for that? Well, we haven't been, look at verse 6 and 7, but we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. We know it's our fault. What's interesting is the way he puts it at the beginning. All our righteousnesses, it's an interesting plural, that's just filthy rags. No wonder we had to turn to Christ for him to offer us the robes of his righteousness, to be clothed in the garments of salvation. No wonder we didn't keep our garments white, and that's why we're wearing white. No, Christ gave us his and ended up taking our red, red robes instead. It's interesting to see that coupled with the phrase, we do fade as a leaf. And we've seen that before. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Here's a leaf that just kind of falls off the tree. Because it's not, it can't hold up. It just can't. And neither can our independent attempts 
at righteousness. We, we don't save ourselves. We don't lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. We come into Christ and all the things he asks us to do, it's like Danyasan waxing on, waxing off. It's just to retrain ourselves so that we can have righteous reflexes so that our will can be reconciled to the will of God. But it's not that that saves us. It's Christ that saves us. It's his righteousness. Because ours, it's filthy rags. It's a fading leaf. Speaking of which, and I'll be sensitive here, think about sacred places where you are finally covered by the atonement of Christ. And I sometimes wonder, if I'm finally covered and clean, why must I remember my own pathetic attempt to cover my own nakedness? But I think that's, that there's a purpose there. I think the Lord does want us to remember our fading leaves. I think he wants us to recall the difference between what we try to do to cover ourselves compared to what only Christ can do through this coat of skins, through his own atoning self-sacrifice. To juxtapose those two and to be forced to grapple with their difference, I think is an important thing so that we remember that even our righteousness compared to the righteousness of God is a filthy rag and could could never be more than that. We rely wholeheartedly on the atonement of Christ. It's the only way we can be saved. Then verse 8 and 9, But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. And then a shift of the metaphor. We are the clay, and thou art potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. So be careful as you put us back on the wheel. Before you put us into the kiln, I realize there are things that I keep slumping on one side and my, my handle doesn't quite stick and, and it's, I'm not as smooth as I need to be. I, I'm an earthen vessel. I'm a big, clumsy clay pot. Oh, just wait. If I can make beauty out of ash, you should see what I can make with clay. Oh, dust of the earth, Adam. (laughs) Just you wait. You'll look like something glorious. Because I'm more than just a potter. I'm a father. And I want you to grow up to be like me. And so he says in verse 10 through 12, Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation, I get it, but what can it become? Our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praised thee. As of now, it's burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Father... Yeah, that kiln, it burns some things, and it feels like we as a people have been burned to the ground. When the Babylonians came, they burned the temple to the ground. It was destroyed. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Haggai, they all had to come back to help rebuild it all? Do you feel that way sometimes? 
you feel like sometimes the clay is so incorrigible that it, it'll never turn out to be something good. Just be patient. God is. Just trust that he's not quite finished and he'll add more and more living water. Even if he has to break you down and grind you to powder, that's the beautiful thing about clay. You can always remake. And God will continue trying. I do love that this chapter ends with this focus on Zion, on Jerusalem, on the holy and beautiful house. Like, God, you, you can't possibly let it stay desolate, can you? So, oh, no, 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 of course not. Hepzibah, Beulah, it'll be fine once you turn back to me. Uh, your home is my home. It's interesting, my, my in-laws, I told you the story of my father-in-law and my mother-in-law in the book of Job. And part of their Job-like uh, suffering was moving from the big house on the top of the hill to the trailer at the bottom and having to look back up and see a house that my father, his construction company built as a dream home uh, for this family. And that fam my wife's family still talks about that home. They lovingly call, lovingly call it 895 because that was the address. And Every once in a while, there's still talk of, wouldn't it be amazing someday if the people who live in it now ever wanted to sell, to buy back 895 and restore it to its, its original glory. And have those children, now with children of their own, and for some even grandchildren, bring them back to the house of their youth, a place, our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praised thee, where we grew up in God, where we came to know him and love him and love each other. That's, that's the temple. That's the gathering of Israel. That's the, the reestablishment of Zion. That's the second coming of Christ. That's the restoration of the gospel. It's, it's buying back 895. It's going back home and having it feel like home again. That's what Israel is begging for. But are they living for it? That's the question. In Isaiah 65, we're so close to the end now. And in some ways, as they're wrestling with themselves, as they're wrestling with God and wondering, are you coming? Are we preparing? Let me just remind you in chapter 65 of the law of the harvest, that you reap what you sow. And if you want the blessings, then keep the commandments. If you want to avoid the curses, then avoid the behaviors that bring them on. He says in verse 1 and 2, I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. Now that's an interesting passage suggests that, fine, I won't, my own people won't listen to me, I'll go somewhere else. And there's some truth to that as far as the shift from Jew to Gentile in the days of Peter and Paul. But there is a Joseph Smith translation correction in that passage that does make things seem a lot more, more clear. In the inspired version, I am found of them who seek after me. That's fitting. I give unto all them that ask of me. That's fitting too. I am not found of them that sought me not, or that inquireth not after me, 
Again, this is the, the more accurate version of the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. So he says, I said unto my servant, Behold me, look upon me. I will send you unto a nation that is not called after my name. For I have spread out my hands all the day to a people who walketh not in my ways, and their works are evil and not good, and they walk after their own thoughts. Amazing change there in the JST. Again, it suggests, my people will not have me, and so I will look elsewhere. This is the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob chapter 5. My trees, my precious olives that have, the olive trees that have, I've done everything for, still bring forth wild fruit. Then I'll have to cut off branches and scatter them abroad and graft in other branches in because I think the roots still have some strength. I'll bring in Gentiles. I'll scatter Israel. And then when all is said and done, I'll, I'll bring those scattered remnants back home. I'll graft them back into their mother tree. It's amazing how all of this is prophesied so long before. He then says in verse 3 through 5, as he's describing his people, unfortunately, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face. How's that for no shame or contrition? Oh no, they're provoking me. They're bringing out this righteous indignation. They do it continually. They do it to my face. No broken hearts and contrite spirits here. What are they doing? That sacrificeth in gardens. The false gods, you would say. That burneth incense upon altars of brick. This is not the incense altar in the holy place. Which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments. Not living among the land of the living, but there hiding among the dead which eats swine's flesh, and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. You don't get much more unkosher or unclean than that. Which say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. Despite all of this hypocrisy, you feel holier than others? Oh, this is, everything's going wrong here among the Israelites' worship. And so as a result, God says, these are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. This is counterfeit, not covenant. This is wickedness, not worship. And this is hypocrisy, not holiness, and I will not have it. He says in 6 and 7, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom your iniquities, and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. That's the law of the harvest. That's reaping what you sow. I will recompense it to you right into your own chest. What's in the Lord's bosom? We are. He's trying to carry us home. But if we won't have him, if we're squirming away from his embrace, what ends up in our bosom? The consequences of our poor choice. In verse 8, he says, Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, just there growing on the vine, and one saith, Oh, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. Just wait as it grows, as it ripens. Then the harvest will come. So be patient here. So will I do for my servants' sakes that I may not destroy them all. See, he's patient. He understands the cluster. He doesn't want to destroy it. I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah an inheritor of my mountains. And mine elect 
shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. And Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for the herds to lie down in, for my people that have sought me. There's a lot of rhymes there to remind us that a remnant shall return. There's Sheir Yashub. I'm so sure of it, I named my son that. Uh, a remnant shall remain. It might just be a cluster of grapes, but that's enough to, to get things started. It's enough to ensure an eventual harvest of holiness. Once they begin to let, once this leaven begins to leaven the lump, okay. He then says in verse eleven, "But ye are they that forsake the Lord." That's the problem here. That forget my holy mountain. The temple is off your radar. That prepare a table for that troop. Uh, that's a strange translation. The word is Gad in Hebrew, which, means, which is an idol of fortune. And that furnish the drink offering unto that number. Now, and again, I think King, King James got that one wrong. Unto that number, the word is many, which was an idol of fate. So let's reread that. That prepare a table for an idol of fortune, and that furnish the drink offering unto an idol of fate. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, ye did not answer. When I spake, ye did not hear, but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. You see, picture someone offering sacrifices to fortune and fate. There's these false idols. This is somebody going down to Vegas and, and feeling lucky, right? And so go hit the tables and, and blow on the dice for me. Oh, luck be a lady tonight. And that's what you're offering sacrifices to? To, to fortune? To, to destiny? Instead of trusting in the real law of the harvest? And trusting in the God who is the gardener? Oh, no. This, you want good fortune? It's not going to come by luck. It's going to come by righteousness and following the commandments of God. What's, what's your, your fate? Whatever you make it to be, really. As I honor your agency and hopefully as you learn to exercise it well, that, those are the real sacrifices I'm asking for, not the ones that you seem to be trying to offer. In verse 13 and 14, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. So which group do you want to be a part of? Do you want to be part of the ye, the all y'all, outside the confines of covenant? Or do you want to be among those who claim to be my servants and live up to that calling? They're the ones that will be blessed with all of these good things. True servants of the true and living God. Verse 15, you shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen. Another translation says, your name will be a curse word among my people. That's, that's the ye, that's the, the residue, that's the outside. Okay, People will use you as a hiss and byword, is a phrase you'll see later in Scripture. For the Lord God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name, that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. 
and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from mine eyes. You see, right is becoming right again. Wrong is becoming wrong again. The, the upside-down morality is starting to come back into proper alignment. People are blessing themselves in the God of truth, realizing that truth is the only way to get those blessings. They're swearing by the God of truth and trying to keep their word as a result. This is a new thing for, for, for this wicked world. No wonder he has to call his servants by a new name. That's not all that's new. In verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. Good riddance. Who would want to remember it anyway? But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Because crying? Tears? Oh, that is so last season. Uh, we, that's so out of style. No, now what's all the rage? Uh, rejoicing. And I have a feeling this fashion will never fade. Because it's a new heaven and a new earth. And those with new names have found new life in Christ. He changes everything. He makes all things new. And what will life be like then when he comes? Again, the second coming, millennial reign. What will it be like? Verse 20 to 21. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. Can you imagine living in a day of such brutal infant mortality rates? A painfully short lifespan? Imagine everyone living to at least a hundred. And these children growing up to be a hundred years old. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They'll live to see the fruit of their labors. They're not building up a life that then gets cut short. Now eternity is what we're preparing for. In 22, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people. And I've seen some with a lot of rings. Okay, so this is going to last a while, eternity. And mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Amazing how often Isaiah brings it back to family. Thy seed, and thy seed seed, and henceforth and forever. Here, you and your offspring with you. You won't labor in vain. In fact, I don't know of anything that we labor more on than on our offspring. That we, we raise them and pour our hearts and souls into them. Not just from birth to age 18. I see that in my parents that are still doing their best to keep raising me and my siblings. And to have the promise that that labor will not be in vain. Imagine parenting in which every lesson ultimately takes root. That every good deed brings back a reward. And all that you've poured into your children, none of it will be in vain. 
those seeds will grow and bear fruit. There's a millennial promise for you. Or in verse 24 and 5, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Now the end there is a reminder of the promise we saw way back in chapter 11 about lambs and kids and a little child leading them, but there being peace. Again, it's millennial reign. The Prince of Peace has finally come. But I do love the way he started those, that passage. Before you call, oh, I'm, I answer. You, you're coming, they've been, remember the I call, wherefore when I call was there no man? The problem of I'm, no, no one's glad when daddy comes home anymore. Remember we saw that earlier? Well, Christ is the opposite. He's the one sitting on the, on the, or kneeling on the couch, looking out at the driveway, so that when we pull up, he can fling open the door even before we stick the key in. Uh, I stand at the door and knock. Will you open unto me? Well, for us, we don't even have to knock. He just wants to throw it open. Before we call, he's already answered. Before we've asked, he's already given the blessing. You can only do that when you so perfectly know the other person that you can anticipate their needs and meet them in advance. That's a good relationship. I had a companion in the mission field. Sadly, we only served together for two weeks. It's the shortest companionship I had. Uh, and, but those two weeks were amazing. And I remember one morning I woke up on time, but my companion had beaten me. He woke up early, early enough that he could shine my shoes. And I was blown away that I didn't ask for that. Uh, I didn't have to. Before I even realized I needed a, new, a, 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 a good shine, he'd already given it to me. Well, I, I can't let him, him be the only one to do that. Uh, he set a good example. I might as well follow. And so later, what did I do? He woke up on time only to see his companion, me, having woken up early so I could iron his shirt. I wish we had longer than two weeks together because we could tell in one another just an attempt to meet needs before the, the need was even presented. And that's the way the Lord is with us. It's the way I want to be with him. What would he have me do? Then I want to be anxiously engaged without him having to command or compel me. I just want to do it of my own free will and choice. The power is in me. I'm an agent unto myself. Then let's get after it. Now, with the end of Isaiah 65, mm, I brace yourself. We only have one chapter left. And what Isaiah gives us here to conclude, in some ways, is a return to his very beginning. Way back in chapter 1, he was talking about worship. He's talked a lot about that. And he's introduced us to the God that we should worship all throughout. But he'll return there in this final chapter to see what, what's our worship been like. Has it been heartfelt? As I've said before, real worship is more than what you do. Real worship is something you do because of something you feel about something you believe. And for the last 65 chapters, he's tried to remind us about what we believe in. 
And he's trying to paint the picture glorious, more, uh, sufficiently gloriously so that we'll actually feel deeply about those beliefs in hopes that it will motivate us and move us to do something about it. Adoration in the form of emulation, to borrow Elder Maxwell's phrase. So in 66 verse 1, thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. It's interesting that the Lord there puts even the temple in its proper place. Because when he says, where's the house that you build unto me? Where's the place of my rest? He's comparing that to heaven, which is his throne, and earth, which is his footstool. And when he says, all those things hath mine hand made, uh, you think I need your help to build a temple? I built the earth, okay, and the heavens. I could probably set up my own tent, you tabernacle builders. I can definitely raise my own temple. But I'm glad you're trying. Because what I'm really trying to build is you. What I'm really after is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And if I can ask you to do things that will help develop that in you, that's what it's for. I'm not asking you to worship me for my sake. I'm asking you to do it for your sake. It'll change you. I'm not asking you to build a temple because I'm, <laughs> I'm homeless. The, the universe is my home, and it fits me very nicely. But building it will build you. And you'll change in the process. Your heart will become more contrite. And that's really what worship is for. All this outward stuff is just to try to help something sink into the inward. So work toward that. Because if you don't, then those outward sacrifices, which are merely outward, will have no, will do no good. He uses some incredibly strong language in the next verse to describe it. Verse 3, he that killeth an ox, which would be part of true sacrifice, but if the true spirit isn't motivating it, then what's it as good as? As if he slew a man. Wait, wait, what? Uh, my sacrifices, I'm trying to keep that commandment, the, the law of sacrifice? No, it's as if you were not keeping the sixth commandment, which is one of the most uh, important, thou shalt not kill. That's how I view it. Wow, keep going. Another rhyme. He that sacrificeth a lamb. There's true sacrifice. Uh, it might as well be cutting off a dog's neck. What? A third rhyme. He that offereth an oblation. There's good sacrifice. Is as if he offered swine's blood, the ultimate desecration of an altar, using an unclean animal to do it. Oh no. Here's a fourth rhyme, just in case none of these others have stuck so far. He that burneth incense. There's true worship will be as if he blessed an idol, idolatry instead of incense. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. This is one of the most graphic illustrations of what I have called the rejection and rehabilitation of worship you'll see anywhere in Scripture. That was a research 
uh, project I did years ago just to see. I was shocked by places in Scripture where God seems to reject worship. And early in Isaiah, he does it. Here at the end of Isaiah, he does it again. And that, if I remember correctly, was still the most graphic of them all. A slitting a dog's neck? Offering swine's blood? I talked about this once before and said, imagine if the bishop went and <laughs> cleansed the temple as, as far as the, the uh, sacrament table was concerned. And he shoves and scatters bread and water all over the front few pews. Imagine him taking your tithing envelope and ripping it up and throwing it in your face. That's what God is doing here. This is bold. And it's not worship he's rejecting. It's false worship. It's shallow or hollow worship. It's, it's doing the deed without feeling the feeling or believing the belief that is supposed to be behind it all. So it needs to be rehabilitated after being rejected. I do want the worship because of what it'll do for you. You just got to do it in the right way. So he then says in verse 4, I also will choose their delusions. Other translations say, I'll choose their punishment, their harsh treatment, their great trouble, and will bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear. But they did evil before mine eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. He's, that's like, what, the second or third time? At least the third time he's said that. You won't listen. You're plugging your ears. You, and yet you're going through the motions. This is outward discipleship with nothing inward taking place. And I won't have it. I reject it. Your fears will come upon you instead. You wouldn't fear me in the right way. Well, you'll have other things to fear in the wrong way. And they'll come. Babylon, Assyria, punishment, consequence, delusion. It's a delusion to think we'll escape it. Verse 5 and 6, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, and I can picture them saying this incredibly sarcastically, mocking the faith of the righteous. They said, well, let the Lord be glorified. Oh, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. You see what the Lord's promised there? Yes, those that are mocking, those that are extending the finger, as we saw before, those that are saying, oh, how's this for the Lord being glorified? Look what's happening to you. Well, I'm patient. I'll wait. And in the Lord's due time, as he hastens his work in his time, then all will be well. Then there will be joy, at least on my side. There may be shame in other areas for those that have not come unto Christ earlier. Notice, by the way, the voice will come from this city of holiness. It will come from the temple. That's the ultimate place where the law of the harvest is fulfilled. In verse 7 and 8, he then says, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Definitely not most mothers I know. Who hath seen such things? Not the one that's stuck in 24 hours of labor and delivery. Well, he says, Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. 
Now, what, what Isaiah is describing here, he's going back to one of his favorite metaphors, motherhood, right? Giving birth, we saw conception in sin and cockatrice eggs hatching and everything else. Uh, we saw a mother's love being compared to the love of God. But what I love here is about childbirth that happens without, without even going through labor. I mean, how did you get to delivery with and sidestep labor? That's Who's heard of such a thing? By the way, my wife always jokes uh, when we had our first, and it was intense, and labor was intense, and this is our first time, and we're just kind of making it through. And when she decided, you know, I think an epidural might be a good idea. I changed everything. I said to her at that moment, you know, honey, however many kids we have, one of us will always get an epidural. I'll let you have dibs if you want it first, but if you're not getting it, I'm getting it. One of us needs to have the little relief here. My wife has even joked, said, you know, epidurals were the compensation God made to make us, when, when he made us live in the last days. There's so much wickedness out there, but at least we don't have to feel all of the pain of childbirth. We feel plenty, even through the epidural. But that was a good compensatory blessing. Uh, but here, the way Isaiah is describing it, before she travailed, she brought forth, I have a nephew that was born not in a hospital, but in the car in the driveway. That's how fast the delivery came. Poor mom and dad. I have a colleague whose grandchild was born in the lawn, uh, or on the lawn outside the hospital. Because they got to the hospital, but didn't make it inside. And poor mom and poor dad giving birth on the lawn. My friend laughed and said, and yet they still got charged for the delivery room. Uh, in the hospital bill. And I was just laughing like, what? I mean, charge them for, I don't know, lawn maintenance, uh, maybe, but, but not for the labor and delivery room. They didn't make it. What the Lord is describing here is the gathering of Israel. And you want to talk about hastening the work in my time? Oh, it's going to come so quickly. It will be miraculously fast to the point that you didn't even realize that you were in labor. I mean, the nine months leading into it, you knew. Okay, and all that pain uh, of, of the first trimester and all of your sickness and the third trimester of, of being so big and, and it's just hard. I feel for you mothers. It's amazing what you go through. And that nine months, but imagine all that preparation, all that time, all that patience and perseverance and prayer. And you're worthy. And you're praying for God to hasten the day. And he hastens it in his day, in his time. To the point that the second coming happened faster than I thought. The, the, the temples dotting the earth. They seem to be, that seems to be happening overnight. Imagine what will come when the earth is finally prepared. And this idea of who has begotten me these is now a sense of the baby's already here. I hadn't even started pushing yet. Well, I helped on my side, the Lord will say. He says in verse 9, Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? I mean, think about it. Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? I mean, what do you mothers think pregnancy was for? <laughs> of course I was going to bring forth this life. Why, why do you think all this preparation was for? Of course I'm going to come. Why all these prophecies of the gathering of Israel, if Israel's never going to be gathered? I've made these promises, and I mean to carry them out. I will fulfill every word. 
I've brought you to the birth. I hope you brought some swaddling clothes because a baby's on its way. I promise. He says, Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her constellations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. This is childbirth. This is a nursing mother with a baby in her arms. To think about the joy. The pain's over. In fact, it barely even began in the big picture. And to have this newborn, talk about a new heaven and a new earth and a new name and a new family and a new life ahead. How can you not rejoice for joy when that's what's happened? This is God keeping his promises. This is what the restoration's been for. This is the coming of Christ and the binding of Satan and the millennial reign and the celestial glory. This is the plan of salvation reaching its fulfillment. And what's not to rejoice over? He says in verse 12, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Can you picture a constant source of living water? This will never run dry. That's your peace. It's not come and go. There's God's glory. It's here to stay. Then shall ye suck. Ye shall be born upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees. Remember, it's the nursing infant that the mother cannot forget. You are little children. Infants, newborns, and yet nursing fathers, nursing mothers, that's kings and queens for you. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Oh, yet more mother imagery. I, as far as I can tell, that's Isaiah's favorite one. Yeah, he likes plants. Yeah, he likes water. Yeah, he likes shepherds and potters and so many other things. But nothing beats a mother's love. Except the love of our heavenly parents. And that's parental love, exalted. He then says in verse 14, When ye see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb. And the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants and his indignation towards his enemies. You get to pick which one you want. You want the hand of the Lord or do you want his indignation? <laughs> you want to be his servants or his enemies? Choice is yours. For behold, the Lord will come with fire. And with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Now those are the harsh arguments, but they only came because we wouldn't listen to the gentle pleas. And what will happen? Verse 17 and 18 they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst. So they're not sanctifying themselves in the right way. They're not purifying themselves at the temple. No, they're back in the garden of Asherah behind trees, not of life, but false trees, counterfeit covenants. And you can tell because of what they're doing there, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse, those are all unclean animals, 
They shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. That's those who turn to pagan rituals for purification. That's not how cleanliness comes. And though we don't go down to the garden behind one tree and eat swine's flesh, we do so often replace the Redeemer with, with lesser things. Someday we'll see where we were wrong, and we'll see the glory of God. In verse 19, I will set a sign among them. There's an end sign to the nations. I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal, and Javan, to the isles afar off, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. This is that righteous remnant. He sets the sign, those that have escaped the wicked world and remained righteous, this righteous remnant, and are then sent forth as far as you can imagine to all the nations, to all among the Gentiles, and they'll be there declaring God's glory. That's missionary work, that's temple work, as far as, as we can imagine. And then in verse 20, they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord. Out of all nations, upon horses, and in chariots, and in litters, and upon mules, and upon swift beasts. Get them here as any way you can, as quickly as you can. Bring them for an offering. Remember the gift we give to God is that nation scattered and peeled? We saw that earlier in Isaiah. That we're giving God the gift of gathered Israel. Father and mother, here are your children. We brought the family home. So here is our offering. Where do we bring it? To my holy mountain, Jerusalem, saith the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. Thank you for bringing this offering. I'm not going to sacrifice them. In fact, I'll let them do the sacrificing. I will turn these people that you've brought, these strangers and foreigners, into priests and Levites. I told you what I'd do for the eunuchs in Israel and for the strangers who come. I would accept their offerings. I'll make of them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All of gathered Israel, all these Gentiles that have been brought along with them, all my children, will rejoice in my name. And that's the sacrifice I'm asking of you. That's Malachi 3. Let's purify the sons of, of Levi so they can offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That's Doctrine and Covenants 128. What will that offering be? The record of our dead. Here, father, here, mother, here are all of your children. Here's the offering we give in righteousness. Then verse 22 and 23. It's done. It, I mean, we've, we've finished here. All of, of Israel is back home. So what's this finale? For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I shall make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. New heavens, new earth, new family, new name, and it remains. And when he says, from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, oh, it's all worship. It's all praise. 
wait, I thought we were only supposed to come on new moons. There's the, the festivals and, and feasts and holy days. Uh, and then we got a month to do our own thing. Or oh, I guess we got the Sabbath, that's right. But it's only one day in seven. But as Isaiah describes it here in this, these final verses, oh no, this is one eternal round of praise. It never ends. The Sabbath, which hopefully we learned to make delightful back in chapter 58, has now become eternal in chapter 66. This is not a monthly moment. This is not a one in seven offering to God. This is 24-7. We just, we're all to, always together. And with all of the marriage metaphors he's been teaching us, that sounds like a honeymoon to me. That was my favorite thing about my honeymoon. There was nothing else t uh, vying for our attention or pulling us away from each other. So 24-7, for the first time in our lives, and in some ways for the last time in our lives, and I guess maybe until retirement, my wife and I could just spend all day together. And to imagine that marriage with the Lamb, and we as the Bride of Christ, rejoicing in that kind of a honeymoon where we never have to part. Now, Isaiah, why didn't you stop there? Why didn't you end with verse 23? Because that's as good as it gets. It's the new heavens. It's the new earth. We made it to the end. This is where the book of Revelation ends. This should be where the book of Isaiah ends. This is where Oh, the earth's mortal existence ends, and now it's on to paradisical glory. But no, this is Isaiah, who's always trying to prove contraries, who spent almost four, thir well, 39 chapters uh, on the justice side of things until it didn't work, and he taught mercy from 40 on. But lest we overswing the pendulum, and lest we think that all of these tender mercies that are coming from a God whose bowels are filled with compassion. <laughs> As the pendulum swings in that direction, he gives us just one last hint to keep it from going all the way there. One last reminder. He's, it's, he's still a just God, and we still have things to repent of and prepare for. And so he gives us one last final verse of justice. If you've ever seen the old movie Pollyanna with that preacher that's always preaching hellfire and brimstone and death comes unexpectedly, right? Well, that, he's all justice. He's all fire and brimstone. And then he changes with Pollyanna's help. And he preaches a sermon that is so filled with mercy that they wonder, who are you and what did you do with our old pastor? Oh, don't, don't tell us. You stay. We don't want the old guy back. But it's so funny at the end of this scene where they're so moved and so welcomed and so embraced by the mercy of their minister. He invites them to be a little bit more merciful themselves. He invites them to do something kind and selfless and charitable. And then with a little tongue-in-cheek and a little bit of a wink, he warns them, because if you don't, I can always go back to the old fire and brimstone. You know I can. That to me seems to be what Isaiah is hinting at with this final message, his last verse. 
section, uh, chapter 66, verse 24. And they shall go forth, they that have been rejoicing in this endless Sabbath, and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Period. Put down the pen. <laughs> Roll up the scroll. Close the book. That's how you ended, Isaiah? With worms that won't die and fire that won't be quenched and people looking with abhorrence at carcasses out on the field? Okay. Interesting ending. Oh, I had a purpose there. I'm intentional with every phrase. What's Isaiah getting at? Again, with all... This, this is the end of a symphony, a masterpiece. And again, the, these final movements have been movements of mercy. He then just ends the whole piece with a note that seems out of place. You're like, ah, ah. And you hear it, and it leaves you unsatisfied. It leaves you wanting resolution. It's this note of dissonance, and you're just, you'll do anything to get to a, to resolve the chord. And I think that's Isaiah's hope. Will you? Will you do anything to resolve the chord? Will you work and worship? Will you pray and prepare? Will you go and gather and do all within your power so that we don't end on this note? I'm leaving the, the, the resolving chord to you, my readers. Wherever you happen to be in the layer cake, Israel in his day, will you overcome Babylon? Israel in Christ's day, will you recognize the Redeemer when he's right in front of you? Israel in the last days, will you overcome a wicked world and gather scattered Israel home so that God can keep his promises? It's up to me beautiful that Isaiah seems to stop short of that, but set it up so we have to do it ourselves. I have just enough OCD that I just, I want symmetry, I want closure, I want, I, I just want it to end in the, right, in the right way. My wife knows that about me. And sometimes she has fun at my expense. We laugh about it. But there'll be times where she'll go, dun, 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 and then leave it. Because she knows I can't just, mm, you can't stop there. Everyone knows the end of that little tune. And I have to go, Da, da. Or even worse, she'll only leave one note. She'll go, da, na, 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 na. And just she'll wait and see how long I stew before I, na. And I just have to. And is Isaiah doing that? It will be up to you to usher in this final fulfillment. Provide the final note. Replace the apostasy with restoration. Choose righteousness instead of wickedness. Prepare the earth for the second coming of the Messiah. 
He who will come in robes of reminding red. He who is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He who is the giver of the place and the name. He that is the shepherd and the husband and the father and the mother. Him of the engraved hands and the beautiful feet. I testify of Jesus Christ. Isaiah has persuaded me to more fully believe in the Lord, my Redeemer. I testify he is the nail in the shore place. And I'm hanging everything on him. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And he will come again. May we be prepared for that glorious day, is Isaiah's prayer and mine. And I offer it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.